December 7, 1941, a day that shall live in infamy. We are the SpyFi Guys, and this is Pearl Harbor. Welcome to the SpyFi Guys, where we cover spy facts, spy fiction, and everything in between. I'm Christian. And I'm Zach. And today we are covering another movie about Pearl Harbor following last week's Tora Tora Tora. This week we are covering Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor from 2001. And to cover that movie, I figured we should have someone who is currently living in Hawaii, as opposed to me who used to live in Hawaii. Let's have a warm aloha to Sarah, returning guest. Aloha. Thank you. Welcome back, Sarah. Glad to see everything's going well in Hawaii. Of course, it is paradise. So yes, today we are covering Pearl Harbor. It's famous for being terrible, but as I think we will discuss, it's not that. No, and I'll also commemorate this recording. I'm wearing an Aloha shirt because, of course, I had to. I will confess that I had not seen this movie before. (laughs) um, Before just now. I have I have many feelings. I have many notes. <laughs> it was a roller coaster of emotion. I thought about I, right. thought I hated it. Thought I loved it. I have, <laughs> I have I have thoughts about. I could talk conservatively for six hours. Uh, I think about this movie. <laughs> Ooh, well, since you could talk for so much about it, maybe we should get started here. <laughs> All right, Zach, can you give us the plot synopsis from IMDb? Yeah, listen to this. A tale of war and romance mixed in with history. The story follows two lifelong friends and a beautiful nurse who are caught up in the horror of an infamous Sunday morning in 1941. Okay. So first of all, there is no based on a true story or anything like that in the beginning of this movie. That's correct, because it is not based on a true story. Only I mean, based- it's based on a true event. As I think <laughs> will show up many times, this is designed to be an answer to Titanic. It's very similar. It to is. It's Michael Bay's Titanic. But Titanic did not claim to be based on a true story, which makes sense. Ah, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, I admittedly have not seen Titanic either. <laughs> what? I haven't I seen it either. Hold I up. Know. Hold up. I what? Know. I know. What? I know. I know. Okay, Zach, um, that's excusable. But uh, <laughs> as a girl of our generation, yeah, how did you uh, not see Titanic? The is honest it, answer is that I thought it was... Principal? Well, I thought it was too racy for me. Um, so I like self-selected out of it. I thought that it was like, uh, I thought it was too sexy. So <laughs> oh it was rated R. I was, I don't know how old I was, 13 or something. Um, I guess I was a little bit of a prude. Uh, <laughs> I respect that point of view. You were like. Oh, I was less than 13 then. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. younger than 13. I was, I was little. I was little. So I, <laughs> I decided it was inappropriate for me. Um, I was oh allowed boy. to watch pretty much uh, whatever I wanted. So it was, it was purely <laughs> self-selection. Pearl Harbor is much more tame. There's no yeah. nudity. Oh, yeah. Yes, in that, yes it, it is PG-13. Let's get into this movie. So it starts off not in Hawaii, but in sub-Midwestern state. I don't think we get... Do we actually get a place where yeah it's in tennessee and it's 1923 okay that's not the midwest (laughs) it looked Uh, like a midwestern state Mm -hmm. yeah it's funny so we opened on a plane and again it's going to be very obvious from that tippity tippity top that i had not seen this movie before (laughs) so we opened on a plane and i thought oh my god we're starting already Uh, (laughs) 
1913? <laughs> well, I didn't see the, the year or the place. All right, all right, all right. Like, oh, it's a plane. Come on, you guys, um, pay attention. It was to Tennessee, 1923. Oh, 23, sorry. It's post-World War One because the dad refers to fighting in World War One. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah so, we get, yeah, so we have like a crop duster, pan over these two kids playing on what looks like, how do they build this thing? It's a makeshift like airplane, but like they have like bicycle parts built into it so that when you turn the bicycle pedals, spins the propeller and they have like, I like this the thing, they had little cards inside, the stuck inside the spokes of the bike so that when you turn the spokes, it makes that sound like a propeller going. That's cool. I, I like that. It was a nice touch of things that, I mean, I was an inventive kid who like, you know, made stuff out of other stuff. So like when I see that sort of stuff, it, it touches my heart. Yeah, so immediately we're like, these guys love flying. That's mm-hmm. the only thing they care about, even <laughs> yeah. as kids. Mm-hmm. And I love there's the little scene where they're like pretending to be on the guns and one shouts, land of the free, home of the brave. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh. I want to get this out, out there too. This movie was made pre-9-11 and, and released pre-9-11. But That's you can't correct. tell because it's... So permeated with that pa- that post 9-11 patrioticness that we all had that was all out there that you kind of feel like it had to have been a post 9-11 movie. That's also okay. something a lot of critics don't like about it. Like some mm-hmm. of the YouTube people that I went to use for Spy Fact versus Fiction complained about the flag waving patriotism. But compared to movies that came later, I didn't think it actually had that much. I think if it had been released post 9-11, so it, I think it might have gotten a bigger impact. Not that this had like a less a small impact. It may it had a budget of like 140 and made 450 million. So it made its money. I loved all the cheesy elements of this movie. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Anything cheesy, I was I was super down for the over the top <laughs> patriotism that just like got you vamped up, ready to go. <laughs> um, I the the bromance between serious uh, bromance. Yeah, I I'm such a sucker. I'm such a sucker for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess this was the perfect choice for Sarah. Then I didn't realize that. <laughs> <laughs> so we have Rafe and Danny, and Rafe is why is he named Rafe? It's a name. <laughs> it boggles the mind. Hmm? I feel like it is. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe like a screenwriter's grandfather was named Rafe or something. That's definitely and a distinctive Rafe, name that you would remember. So I, several times throughout the movie, forgot who was who. <laughs> so I <laughs> uh, think of them as Ben Affleck and, um, what's his name? <laughs> he um, forgot his name. I forgot already. Josh Hartnett? Josh Hartnett. Josh Hartnett, and I, yes. I thought Josh Hartnett was the other Josh, the one who's Thanos. Oh. Josh Brolin. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, boy, he sure looks different when he was younger, but it was a different Josh, as it turns out. Yeah, and he's much older. Uh, Josh Brolin is. Right. The thing that we need to learn here, well, first we get hints of here, is that Rafe seems to be dyslexic, because he misspelled Rudder on, like, they have a little chalkboard on it, and he spelled it wrong. Once his dad finishes dusting the crops, they sneak into the crop duster and play with all the dials and then accidentally start the plane. Here's my hot take. Children should not fly airplanes. That's not that hot of a take. <laughs> I mean, it's very clear they didn't intend to actually take it off. I mean, I think the only yeah. exception would be one Anakin Skywalker who can clearly fly a plane well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but should he, though? So... <laughs> <laughs> I think it was R2 doing most of the flying. Mm. <laughs> 
So they, you know, accidentally end up flying a few inches off the ground. Danny's dad comes and is like, you know, scolding Danny and is taking him away and and also get like, you know, makes mention of this, you know, you don't spend any time with this no account boy who can't read. So again, something's up with Rafe. When Danny's are getting taken away, Rafe hits grabs the rudder off of their makeshift plane and hits Danny's dad over the back and calls him a no good German because of course there's still the anti-German sentiment from World War One. Yeah, you can ask that professor who wrote Traitors or Patriots about that. A lot of the dialogue in this movie is really bad, but there are a couple scenes that feel very real. Unfortunately, they tend to be pretty negative scenes, and oh. this is one of them. The, uh, I, yeah. I really quite like this part. I recognize the actor, but I couldn't remember his name. The guy who plays oh. the dad. William he looks Fickler. really familiar. There you go. He's a perennial that guy. He's like, in that everything. Guy. That yeah. he's, in, he's in the uh, opening of The Dark Knight. He's the banker. Right. He gets hit and he doesn't hit back. He just stands up and is like, has a World War One like PTSD flashback and then walks away. Danny, you know, thanks Ray for sticking up for him, but goes back to his dad. I mean, ultimately, yeah, of course he's here. And then we cut to our first of many newsreels about the war on the front. So I guess they jump forward like 15 years or whatever. And next we meet grown up Danny and Rafe who are uh, flying P-40s, playing a game of chicken. You know, as it was coming back and forth between Josh Hartnett and Ben Affleck, it took a couple of flashes back to Ben Affleck, despite the fact that I knew that he was in this movie. I knew he was <laughs> basically the star of the movie. Uh, and yet, it did, it did take a second. You're used to seeing him as old Batman. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. I don't know. I blame the... The camera angles and the lighting. <laughs> or the fact that this movie was is 20 years old. Think about that. Yeah, that could be, that That's could be part of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sounds about yeah. right. Anyway, so we see them, and they're really good pilots. They play chicken, and then they both turn the same, or, you know, turn the same way to narrowly avoid hitting each other. And, of course, this, this gets them called into, you know, their superior officer's office, who is one. Uh, He's Jimmy Doolittle. Jimmy, I was like, I was like, do, I was like, I can remember. It was, yes, Jimmy Doolittle, played by Alec Guinness or Alec Baldwin. Excuse me, Alec Guinness. Like, wow, I had Star Wars on the brain because we we're talking about Anakin Skywalker briefly. I don't remember them identifying him as Jimmy Doolittle at this point. Also, I had an observation that the guy with the sunglasses who's watching them play chicken, I thought was Casper Van Dien, but it turns out it was not him. <laughs> Doolittle is chewing them out, mm-hmm. and this is like straight out of Top Gun, <laughs> doing flybys and all that you know, getting chewed out after that yeah i can see why christian likes this movie now <laughs> it's interesting that rafe responds by basically like kissing his butt a little bit the french have a word for it they call it an homage sir it was just okay this movie is pretty good at drama it needs to stop trying to do comedy the comedy uh, is almost hey, never funny. i like this line it's like that's bullshit bullshit uh, macaulay but it's very good bullshit glad you brought that up because this is the first time that the subtitles are a little bit censored oh yeah yeah right i didn't i was those <laughs> the subtitles this the the closed captions were were censored right. ah. to be fair i was okay with it when they had all the japanese slurs in there they mm-hmm. got cut those out but like you know the swear words they didn't need to censor that it's just funny it's like watching yeah. a tv edit Except without yeah. the, the bad ADR over there. Or oh, the TV edits captions, but the real audio. Mm-hmm. 
Right. So basically, he says that's a load of baloney yeah. on the subtitle. Yeah. That's the one <laughs> it took me because that was the first time that there was a disconnect, and you know, obviously, I had them on, and it it took me a minute to real <laughs> to realize what's happening. All right, that's the I second time I've yeah. said it's taken me a minute to realize something fairly obvious. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your brain is not fully engaged with the movie yet. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully I will redeem myself as the podcast goes on. <laughs> anyway, so we also hear that uh, Rafe has been accepted in something called Eagle Squadron, mm-hmm. which is a outfit that the British RAF or Royal Air Force have set up so that American pilots can go over and fight in the war so basically he's like if i don't go and fight in this war i might age out what is it i'm almost 30 he said i'm gonna be 25 i'm gonna be an old man and i wrote that down because that is such a 25 year old thing to say that (laughs) i'm gonna be an old man i'm 25 he was 29 at the time of this filming if i recall so he's playing younger than he actually was which is fairly normal Actually, yeah. I don't think his concern was so unwarranted because soldiers and sailors and airmen are often much pilots, better yeah. in real life than they are in the movies. Like, a lot of them were not even old enough to buy a beer in World War II. Especially in World War II, yeah. So next we go over to a bunch of nurses on a train. The main one is Evelyn, played by Kate Beckinsale. Mm-hmm. And she's telling the story of how she met this guy. So here's my question. These are Navy nurses, right? Yes. But yeah. all the guys are army pilots. Did okay. the uh, army not have nurses? Like, no, why would Navy nurses did. be administering shots for army pilots? I don't know. It may have been a mistake. But I <laughs> wanted to talk about the nurses because Sarah is our local, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Our local peddler of feminist propaganda, as she would admit okay. herself. <laughs> so I'm curious to hear her thoughts on these nurses because it seems like the only thing they do in the movie is talk about men. No, they also save a bunch of lives. You know what? Let me yeah, let me rephrase that. The only <laughs> thing they talk about before the war starts is like men. Would you say that's accurate? Yes, I think so. I think that's pretty accurate. What do you think about um, that? <laughs> Half of my notes are about the relationship between Kate Beckinsale and Ben Affleck. So it's um, <laughs> interesting that, uh, that you bring that up. This movie is a little bit dated in the way it treats women in general, I think. I don't, I don't know who wrote this script. I'm guessing it wasn't a female. Uh, I did not write this script, obviously. They did not ask my input. The characters, particularly the nurses, seemed somewhat two-dimensional, uh, and they weren't given really a lot of agency or ability to drive the plot or interest or really much of anything other than perhaps a slight lack of intelligence, which is Ouch. somewhat insulting. I mean, the one of them is super bimbo-y. Oh, and, yeah. you know, it's not until you know, the end of the movie that we get to see a different side of them. In a scene that reminded me of Captain America, the first Avenger, not just pilots, but I think just army soldiers are getting shots and like eye exams and all sorts of medical stuff. And so we get shot of Rafe, who is, like we said, we've you know hinted at, or it's been, it's heavily hinted that he's dyslexic. And so he's getting in line for the eye exam where Kate Beckinsale is. And he like has memorized and or he has written down on paper what the, what the bottom, what's that, uh, bottom line is. Spouts it off so fast that Evelyn is suspicious. And so she instead has him read the, to- the very top line, read the bottom, but 
backwards and only every other letter. So he gets all tripped up. And he makes this plea to her that's like, don't fail me. It's not his eyesight, it's just he has trouble reading letters sometimes. And she's like, well, maybe with proper schooling. He's like, no, I've had schooling. They just didn't know what to do with it. It seems and, very realistic that in World War II, they wouldn't have sensible accommodations yeah. for people who can't read. I mean, they Look wouldn't the know what dyslexia is at that point, I think. I don't know. I actually don't know when dyslexia was officially like diagnosed and discovered. I believe it. She you know, decides that she's going to pass him. Well, it helps if he has a cute butt. <laughs> well, that's not till later. <laughs> I, I'm, I know, I was joking. <laughs> this scene reminded me, or the movie in general, every once in a while, reminded me of Skyward, which is the Brandon Sanderson book about a pilot squadron. Which I apparently should read. Is it based in reality? Mm-mm. No. It's a fantasy world? Yes, yeah, but it's, it's not part world. of... What's the thing? What's his universe okay. called? The Cosmere. Hashtag not sponsored by Brandon Sanderson. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hashtag Brandon Sanderson, please, please sponsor. <laughs> Just sponsor my life. Love Brandon Sanderson. Hashtag not ad. And I quite enjoyed the book Skyward as well as its sequel. And that scene in particular reminded me of the book for the, the vast audience of uh, Brandon Sanderson fans who also listen to the Spy Pie guys, this comment is for you. Uh, <laughs> you know, we have, uh, you know, a main character, the protagonist, who is, you know, kind of on the outside and like kind of trying to work hard to get to get on the inside. And, you know, all they want to do is fly. The I really need to read this book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Same thing with Gattaca. If you guys remember that movie, all the main character wants is to go to space. Mm-hmm. Seems to be a common thing with movie protagonists. Yeah, that's their want. Something that hopefully every movie character has is a want. If it's a well-written movie, unlike yeah. Get Smart. <laughs> oh, wow, going back to that. <laughs> Anyways, we come back to Rafe, who steals another soldier's chart and go, so he can go over to see Evelyn and thank her. Yeah, and then she and starts also- giving him needles in the butt mm-hmm. talks. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, which... He had already had. As it turns out, he'd already had. Okay, so what do we think about this scene? I thought it was like her abusing her power at first to like mess with him. Mm-hmm. But then it turns out it was a fairly honest mistake on her yeah. part. But I mm-hmm. still say that the cute butt thing was very unprofessional. She didn't say it. She just may have thought it, but she didn't actually say it until later on. That's true. She's like She says that as she's retelling it to her colleagues. Okay. But yes, I think it's supposed to be funny that he keeps getting needles into his rear end. I, mean, I didn't particularly <laughs> find it that funny personally, but okay. She figures out that he uh, has already gotten this shot. When he starts to slur his words and when he's trying to say, I really like you, he says instead, I really lick you. I was like, wait, what? Oh yeah, that was just peak comedy too. <laughs> I couldn't yeah. believe, although I guess I could believe, uh, they were making light of... I don't want to call it a medical issue exactly, but I was concerned. Like, if you shouldn't be getting a shot twice, like, what <laughs> happens to you? Should you be, like, right. no yeah. one was, was seemed to take care or address that aspect of it at all. But that was what was in my head, was, oh, no, he got, <laughs> he got the shot twice. What are the, the medical repercussions of that? I mean, the movie, so the movie in my, my head canon is that, all right, the, the nurses who are trained medical professionals know that, all right, if he would just get, you know, woozy or something. So they're not so concerned about that in the story. They're just concerned. <laughs> but he gets woozy, he falls over, hits his head, 
So again, it's more slapstick yeah. comedy, which is mm -hmm. unusual to see Ben Affleck doing. And while mm -hmm. I have the floor, I would actually disagree with you, Sarah. I felt like Kate Beckinsale's reaction to realizing that he had the wrong meds was appropriately concerned. But that's that's me. I mean, I guess she had some concern in her voice. It wasn't clear to me that she did anything. Okay. <laughs> Evelyn and her other nurse colleagues are exiting, and Rafe is there with a, like, ridiculously bandaged nose. Yeah, again, it's supposed to be funny, I think. Haha, <laughs> he looked so dumb with his bandaged I mean, nose. He yes. does look dumb. <laughs> uh, I thought so. Okay. I mean, he makes a reference, like, it's like, this is mostly precautionary, even though it looks pretty terrible. Hmm. Okay, Sarah, would you like the floor to talk about this scene? <laughs> I'll be very brief. I'll be very brief as I, you know, I just lean forward in my chair. All right, Ben <laughs> Alec does not give up. And I know as the audience, we are supposed to find this very charming and endearing. You know, I want someone who doesn't give up on me. And, and that happens in a lot of movies. Mm -hmm. girl says no and then the guy keeps going and we're like oh that's so cute i hope they get together and then they do and they live happily ever after i think that's mm -hmm. a huge problem in movie tropes and i think this movie exacerbates that problem that listen listen bud she says no she said no she doesn't want to date you don't stalk her don't wait for her and try to I'm making this, like, pounce ginger with my hands. Uh, <laughs> don't, like, waylay her as she's coming out of a building to ask her for a date. She has already said no. How mm -hmm. annoying would it be in real life for any woman to continuously get accosted by the same guy? That's harassment. That's illegal. The reason in the movie sphere that we're okay with it is because he's kind of attractive. And that's really the lesson of the movie. We're okay oh, with it oh God. because he's kind of good looking. And that's kind of a messed up message to yeah. take. There should be a big warning title card at the beginning of this movie <laughs> to tell everyone to respect boundaries and no means no. And I wish there were like, uh, as part of the rating system, like the PGR rating system, there should be a like, man is not respecting women rated R. <laughs> it's interesting how this keeps coming up with movies Sarah has covered with us. It didn't happen in Sergeant Stubby, but it did happen in Austin Powers. I was say Austin Powers, yes. Though, of course, the classic example of this is Han Solo. He's probably, in The Empire Strikes Back, is probably the first and best example. I doubt that he's the first example, but he it is a good example of this trope. Yep. What I took away from this is just seeing Ben Affleck in more pain, which I was thought was hilarious no i was mad that he was being a creepy stalker and at this point in the movie i was furiously writing down my my thoughts my visceral reactions and i thought i no, i hate this movie i can't believe of course they, this is why they wanted me on for this movie now it all makes sense it's coming together um and i had expected kind of that trend to continue but up until this point i was like this movie sucks it's boring he hates women like i have a huge problem with this movie okay i would like to step in on this sarah <laughs> it seems like your reaction to this was much much stronger than austin powers which is interesting because i thought austin powers as a character was way worse like he said much more inappropriate things to the object of his desire than have, than Rafe. I have a huge problem with Austin Powers. I uh, did not care for the movie. Mm -hmm. but the what's 
I think more insidious about this portrayal is that it's not a caricature. It's not mm. something that we're supposed to think is a problem. Austin Powers, although mm. I didn't enjoy <laughs> watching it, the audience is supposed to know that it's a farce, that it's something that we're supposed to, everything he does, we're supposed to think it's bad. That being said, uh, I still don't enjoy or support uh, watching those types of things anyway. So that includes uh, a lot of James Bond movies, that includes Austin Powers. It okay. isn't something I enjoy watching. But yeah, the, the stealthy anti-feminism and the stealthy uh, suggestion and encouragement to break boundaries this feels more insidious because we're not supposed to think it's bad. We're supposed to think it's charming. We're supposed to think that this is the right way for men to behave. This is what a romantic, uh, romantic love looks like. And I don't think that's what romantic love looks like. I see. Thank you Alice. for parsing the difference. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I have one last thing about this scene, which is this is the scene that contains the infamous. I don't remember all the, all the details. I don't think it'll be anyone's favorite quote, which is, my heart hurts. No, I think it's my nose that hurts, which is like famous for being so terrible. I don't. I mean, I remember the line because I've seen this movie a lot, but I yeah. do not remember that being an infamous line. I love you so much it hurts, or, or something. Oh, or yeah, you're yeah, so yeah, beautiful it that. hurts, or something like that. Yeah. He says, "I think it's my my nose that hurts." He says, "I think it's my heart." Okay. The reason why it keeps coming up is because I keep googling cheesy lines from movies for a panel <laughs> we do at Awesome Con, and this keeps showing up, but it's too short to do uh, in a scene. Hmm. So it jumped out to me, but All time right. to move on, I think. Oh, yes. Kate Beckinsale views his uh, being injured as, I don't know what, falls for him and they kiss. And so back on the train, as she's telling this story to all her nurse friends, she says it's been the best, what, four weeks and however many days. And so they're going to go meet up with him and all his pilot buddies at a jazz club in New York City. And at this point is when I recognize Jennifer Garner as one of the nurses. Right? She's wearing glasses. So, so this is before her big break, before she was anyone. That's why she has such a small role here. But also, so we get a sh shot of all the pilots getting ready, including Rafe and Danny. One of the guys, he tells his buddies, all right, you know, yeah, put this under your eye drops and like well up and say, you know, they're training me to be a big bad war hero to get their attention, basically. We see various guys trying to talk up some of the nurses and a bunch of them striking out. <laughs> Rafe and Evelyn are dancing and Rafe has not told Evelyn that he's going to be going away yet. So he's keeping that secret. Sneak off and go to see New York by boat. Go and see New York Harbor and not drive. What's the word? What would boat. the word be? Pilot <laughs> a boat. Yeah, but I, okay, well. But you they cruise. By, they cruise. Yeah, they cruise mm -hmm. by. Uh, I think it's the Queen Mary because they're talking. You know, and they're talking about you know how when the wars when when the world's calmer, we can take a cruise like this, dress for cocktails, and have fancy dinners. At which point he gets up on like or gets them up on a platform. They have a little makeout session up there, and then they actually knock the lever so it drops them from that height. Yeah, more slapstick comedy. At Ben Affleck's expense, which does not sustain through the rest of the movie. Hmm. Apparently, what Michael Bay has said is, is that the first half of this movie, he was trying to make it like a 40s slapstick kind of comedy for that all the romantic stuff. Oh, complete with the male gaze. Hmm. So it seems like everyone else is in like an apartment. They're having a grand old time partying. 
but this is when Rafe reveals to Evelyn that he's that he's you know going away, not not just going away, but going away the next day. That's right. And I think the idea is it's like a sleazy move. It's like I saw an Israeli comedian once who's like, I'm leaving for the Golan Heights tomorrow. Touch it. That was like his pickup line. So anyway, but he can't follow through with it because he's such a noble guy. Rafe is, that is. Yeah. And so he tells Evelyn, all right, don't come to see me off at the train station. So I like this part. It felt very real. You see it in other war movies like Hacksaw Ridge, where he meets the girl of his dreams right when he's about to leave. So they write each other letters throughout the whole war. So my reaction, obviously, I'm going to have a reaction, right? Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) As far as the movie timeline goes, we go from being super mad at the portrayal of the relationship and how they got together to an admittedly kind of cute rapport between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And they look really happy. And I thought, okay, well, if, you know, if it continues on this trajectory, you know, I, I knew that the movie was kind of a love story. And I thought, okay, I'll, you know, I'll learn, oh, I'll learn to love them as a couple. So that's where my head was at. Uh, just so, again, hadn't seen the movie before. <laughs> just so you know, that's what I was thinking during that scene. And then I thought, oh, they're too happy. One of them is going to die. <laughs> oh, if only. Mm. <laughs> The other thing that I thought was interesting about that scene in particular was that the most romantic thing that he could do in that moment was not sleep with her. And mm. in the moment, I really appreciated that. You know, see, see feminist rant here. Um, mm-hmm. If that's the pinnacle of, you know, romantic action is, you know, I you know, will respect your boundaries. I was like, okay, okay. Like, I'm... Stopping up to you or whatever. But then I realized later in the movie that I have very different thoughts about that. I will save my thoughts for later because it is a plot spoiler. Okay. But I have, throughout the movie, uh, I mentally have returned to that scene and then got mentally so mad. <laughs> but at the time, I was like, oh, that's so sweet. And then we go to the stupid test. So there's a lot of up and downs here. There's a lot of, ugh, I hate this. I hate them as a couple. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're so cute. Oh, that's so nice. He's respecting her boundaries. I can, I can get through this. And then the test, if she loves me, she won't listen to me and she'll show up anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm, yeah, sorry. No. I'm sorry. No, thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> um, it's once again, uh, the expecting words and actions, not to meet each other you know believe believe women um people mean what they say and that's why they say it if mm-hmm. someone says don't come or someone says i want you to come you shouldn't assume that they secretly mean the opposite and that's was a recurring theme and then i got that again so <laughs> <laughs> yeah the whole thing of like if she comes then she really loves me was mind-boggling it didn't Mm -hmm. make any sense and why was it even here i don't know so that you could get the dramatic scene of kate of evelyn running to the train station even though because she's late to try to catch him and you know the uh, dramatic irony of you know she she's there and he can see her and he's knocking at the window but he won't she doesn't hear him and I don't it know. felt very uh, Romeo and Juliet, uh, mm, particularly yeah. the um, the Leonardo DiCaprio version of Romeo and Juliet, <laughs> um, mm. in which they sort of 
well, in that one, they sort of they wake up and they see, spoiler alert for, I guess, Romeo and Juliet, um, <laughs> they, they wake up and they see each other in that uh, director's vision. You know, but generally, you know, they wake up, they see the other one, and they're like, oh, it's dead, I'm going to kill myself. And then, mm-hmm. you know, kind of the same thing. Vice and it versa. felt a little bit like yeah. that. Um, so it felt a little Romeo and Juliet. And the movie, uh, again, is sort of oscillating and, and tearing me between these, like, heart-wrenching <laughs> moments. Like, the scene that we, I think, acted, I think we skipped over it, the two, where the bromance is happening and oh, they're yeah, talking look, and yeah. they're seeing each other off to her. Like that mm-hmm. was a genuinely heart touching moment. And then, so once again, we had the movie like getting me angry and then getting me feels, um, you know, the boy and the girl keep missing each other interjected with uh, these like weirdly jarring moments about a bad relationship. Sounds like a Michael Bay film. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're expecting a lot from the writing of the romance. I basically just turned my brain off anytime they were together. And I was sort of hoping we were not going to talk about it, but I, I guess luck. I was wrong. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll stop. Mostly. No, 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 no. no. Share, <laughs> share your opinions. It's fine. So we next go into another newsreel, uh, which tells us about Eagle Squadron. And it like transit. I like this transition. It like transitions from that, like the newsreel footage into real footage. Yes. You know what else the movie did black and white into color? Michael Collins. A great movie. So I anyway, will not dignify that with a comment. Okay, so he gets to England, and Vincent Van Gogh from the Doctor Who episode with Vincent Van Gogh oh. gives him some bad news. Is that him? I did yeah. not recognize him. Huh. Mm-hmm. That's right. And they're looking in pretty rough shape. They're repairing planes, like, right on the runway there. He sees his plane that the guy who piloted it previously died inside of it. Yeah, it's a bloody plane. You see what I did there? <laughs> that was shocking. Inheriting you know, the very gruesome plane that someone brutally died in. There was mm-hmm. brain matter and blood and the glass yeah. was broken. Um, and knowing that you are going to go up in it next uh, mm-hmm. would, would be difficult. Yeah, there's a scene that we skipped over, but I'll say briefly. There's a part where Danny gives Rafe like a very realist perspective. He's like, "Oh yeah, <laughs> why are you in such a hurry to get into the war? People die in a war. You could die in a war, so treat it seriously." There's a little bit of that stuff in the movie, but they don't follow through. Like, I don't think they gave this bloody plane enough breathing room to really make that a well-developed part of the movie. Kind of mm. wish they did, but the movie's really long, so you had to make a compromise mm. somewhere. So next we go to the White House. We have FDR, played by Angelina Jolie's dad. I didn't even recognize him as yeah. FDR. Yeah. Uh, what, oh, you mean... Wait, what is his actual name now? John Voight. That's well, you the one. He, like the, he had the, like, prosthetics oh, or something? He does have prosthetics on there. Yeah, yeah that's John yeah. Voight. That's her father? Oh, you didn't know that? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. No. Interesting, interesting. Mm-hmm. I actually don't remember what happens this scene. Basically, he's just trying to trying oh, to convince. Oh, that's right. This is that scene. Yeah, he's the, to send more you know, supplies. They need more supplies. I think at this point, but it doesn't make a lot of sense. My brain must have been like boop 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 boop. <laughs> what I wrote down was, I think the best Churchill was probably in the Crown. I also appreciated the Churchill <laughs> from Doctor Who. Who is your favorite Churchill? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's relatable. I mean, obviously yeah. the Gary Oldman one in Darkest Hour was really good because he actually mm-hmm. talked like Winston Churchill, actually dead, which is like kind of high-pitched and nasally. But the Doctor Who one's good too. Yeah. 
So next we go to Japan. We meet Admiral Yamamoto. This is a lot of information that was repeated from Tora Tora Tora, basically, where we find out that the Japanese army has started to invade China and also that the, the U.S. is having an embargo on them. Admiral Yamamoto seemingly gets inspiration of how he's going to do his attack by seeing kids flying kites. The Japanese are much more sympathetically portrayed in the beginning of the movie than later. Like, they don't come off as, like, the bad guys in this part. I don't know. I kind of think they do. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Okay, well, later in the movie, they have, like, these scary drums that play every time the Japanese are I don't know that there were... Well, I mean, those are, like, taiko drums. It's not necessarily scary, but okay. I yeah I did notice later that they were a little bit more faceless uh, and a little mm. bit more like kind of otherized. Absolutely. But what I I noticed in this scene, <laughs> the captions were I wrote down the word that the captions were entertaining. I don't know if the captions okay. were entertaining, um, but they did have quote unquote speaking Japanese as the subtitle. <laughs> Which mm-hmm. on my screen actually covered, covered up the, the English, actual, yeah. the English mm-hmm. translation of what they were saying, which was embedded in the movie. And I thought maybe they shouldn't block the English translation with mm-hmm. speaking Japanese. Uh, I'm going to be charitable and think it was just some technical mistake. Oh, yeah, I'm sure, I would it, hope I'm sure so. it was a technical error. Yeah. Did you recognize one of the uh, Japanese uh, officials, Zach? So I recognize him, but I'm afraid of saying who he is because you're going to think I'm racist. It's uh, Kari Hiroyuki Tagawa, who played Sang- Shang Tsung in the Mortal Kombat series, as well as a bunch of other stuff. Isn't he a man in the High Castle? Yes, he is. Yes. Yeah, that's probably yeah, what I, I recognized think- him from. I recognized him from it in the High Castle. He was also in, I think he was in License to Kill. Okay. Well, yeah, so we- next we go to the nurses who are all arriving in Pearl Harbor and is that actually Pearl Harbor? Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of the stuff that's in in the water and all that stuff is Pearl Harbor, but other stuff like mm-hmm. you know anytime that anything that could be a set, probably actually just a set. Uh, but yeah, so then they're basically they're getting a tour of the harbor and they're seeing basically all the men who are on all the ships and like one of them is like counting like all the different how many men there are basically and the odds are in their favor is what they say. See, that's the only thing they talk about. But uh, by the way, I didn't look this up for Spy Fact versus Fiction, but I'm pretty sure that fraternization is like heavily frowned upon. It's like mm-hmm. cheerleaders and NFL players. Well, there's just so many characters in this movie. Mm-hmm. We have Evelyn, and she is like a crew. And mm-hmm. then we have the pilots, and they have two crews. So many people. Yes, but I could act because they ha- seem to have distinct personalities, I could keep track of them better than in Tora Tora Tora. In context, where. Our char- like people in Tora 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 were real life characters, but they got like zero personality. Yeah, they so were basically delivering exposition. Yeah, they ha- these guys actually have a personality. Like, okay, you got Red, who's the one who stutters. Okay, you can remember him. All right, mm. Billy and um, the other guy, they're forgettable. Um, but and then you have Rafe. And then you have <laughs> Goose, played by, uh, what's his face? Michael Shannon. Michael Shannon, who's just weird and out there so he at least that he's different yeah they actually had wrote... someone i think it was goose but it sounded a lot like yep. goose and i thought mm-hmm. and this comes out top gun right they that was intentional <laughs> I, I would think so yeah See, he reminded me a lot of rami malik's character from the pacific if you guys have seen the pacific yeah. rami malik is in it as one of the marines and he seems crazy even before they get into combat 
<laughs> like he seems like Michael Shannon's character is like totally loopy. Seems like he's gonna go nuts and start shooting his own guys at like any second. So uh, yeah, we meet him and he's building a surfboard and he's like gonna well, make a million dollars. Not just building a surfboard, but he's adding a fin to it. Oh, they didn't have fins before that. Uh, back versus <laughs> fiction. Okay, fine. <laughs> yeah, we have the lo you know the pilots who meet you know the local pilots on the ground in Hawaii, including Goose and Earl. And then we have Rafe, you know, writing letters to Evelyn, talking about how terrible the fighting is, how it's not how I imagined it would be. And Evelyn's That's... writing these, like, these, you know, romantic things about how of soaking in the every sunset's last energy and sending it from my heart to yours. It felt a little cliche, and I do love the cheesy stuff, but <laughs> the writing from the front and the postcard-looking picture of Hawaii felt... Uh, felt a little bit too much. Yeah, felt a little cliche. To be fair, though, <laughs> and you'll attest to this, Sarah, Hawaii does look like that. Oh, for sure. And in <laughs> fact, I loved seeing all of the Hawaii things. Every time mm -hmm. I just heard the word Hawaii or there was any reference to Hawaii, I was like, Squee, I live here. And it was great. <laughs> Perfect movie for you, then. Yeah. So next we go to Admiral Kinney, who we met last week. I think you mean Admiral Kimmel. Kimmel, thank you. And he is saying what well, we learned in Tora Tora Tora, that Pearl Harbor is too shallow to be attacked with torpedoes, but they're worried about sabotage. So they're putting all their planes together, which will make them a really easy target. Well, easier to, easier <laughs> to watch. <laughs> and as if to counter, completely counter the fact, you know, they're saying that it's too shallow for torpedo attack and all of that sort of stuff. We next go back to Japan, where they've got this really sweet setup of like model boats of all the, the, the battleships. Mm-hmm. This is one thing that I was annoyed with last week, is they say that they have adjusted for, to, so the torpedoes can travel through the shallower depth of Pearl Harbor. They don't tell us how, and here they actually show us how. All right, they've added wooden fins that would elongate the body of it to make it so that they would actually be able to travel in the harbor. That's right. I appreciated that. Yeah, I appreciate that <laughs> as well. And next we get the dramatic scene. Rafe talking with the Brit RAF guy, and, you know, the alarms go off. Call sign is, I think, Red 1, and we hear Red 2 and Red 4, which, of course, made me think of Star Wars. That's right. They even say things like, he's on my tail, I can't <laughs> shake him, and someone says, pull up Red 1. Mm -hmm. So, of course, Star Wars was based on World War II movies. So oh, I yeah. Guess... Those dogfights, yeah. Right. It's like I said before, if, if they, what's inspiring what, depending on how you see, what order you see things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's also dogfighting in the Brandon Sanders book, just for an extra little plug. <laughs> Brendan so, Sanderson does his own spin on it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So he t managed to take out a couple of the guys, but then he gets one right on his tail. Oh, and there was a dropped line. Mechanic fixed a bunch of stuff, but the oil line is still leaky. So as he's dogfighting, you know, he gets an oil spray all, you know, all over his face. So it starts a engine fire starts, and he gets shot down. Yeah, he even has like a death spiral at one point. Mm -hmm. And what he says as his plane is going down, he says, like, Oh my God. And I felt like that is, or at least his expression relayed what I think mm -hmm. someone might feel if, you know, as their plane was being shot down. Yeah, I think I thought this was well acted by Ben Affleck here. Yeah. yeah um, I have once. the note that I wrote, mm -hmm. which is only funny in retrospect, is hmm, he died a lot sooner than I thought. <laughs> uh, oh, come on, you really yeah. thought he died? Well, so I thought. I didn't write out my feminist rants. I just wrote out my like random thoughts. Probably should have, uh, <laughs> or should have prioritized my, my intellectual <laughs> arguments a little bit. I wrote, it's less than a third of the way in. 
when he crashed in the water, I thought, that's survivable. <laughs> they made the point of writing into the story that he shot through the window thing. But when they cut to the Josh Hartnett scene, I was like, oh, I guess he would die. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Yeah. Well, the part where he pulled the gun out, if it weren't for a main character, I thought he might have shot himself, which is why World War One oh. pilots did. Had a gun. Uh-oh. Yeah, had I wondered, in case. yeah, I wondered if that's where they were going with that. I'm glad he didn't, frankly. But I thought that it would, it would be funny to, funny is not the right word, uh, an odd writing choice to write in uh, kind of an escape hatch for your main character and then not get mm-hmm. foreshadowing. Right. <laughs> yeah, a literal escape hatch in his case. <laughs> yeah. One of the so- uh, other pilots, Red, has a stutter. He does come into play later. And so he hooked up with one of the er- other nurses, Betty, who's like, Apparently only like 17 or eight. She lied about her age. We find out a little bit later, but I just put it in here. Who lied about her age to, you know, join the Navy. Yeah, this confused me because there's a part where they were like, wow, he's really playing up that stutter. So uh-huh. I was like, does he actually have a stutter or is he just pretending yes. to? So he, feel bad for him? What it made it seem like was that, he, okay, he has actually has a stutter, but knows how to play it to make, give him, him sympathy so that he'd be more attractive to the women. Yeah, that eventually became clear later, including yeah. when his disability was played for hilarious laughs during the fight. I didn't think that. Anyways, we'll get to <laughs> it. So we next go to a boxing match. I don't actually know which ship this is supposed to be, but on one of the ships. And it's against uh, Doris Miller, who is a cook on the West Virginia, if I recall. Cuba Gooding Jr. Yeah, the part where they're like, so what's your job? And he says, a cook. Reminded me of Finn in Star Wars saying, I work sanitation. <laughs> So something I was wondering about is yeah. this is in a lot of movies where two guys are boxing and someone's like taking bets, taking bets. Who you got? And I want to know is how do they pay people back? Because no so one's someone has remember. to take the bets, basically. So someone has to say, "I'll cover that bet," and all. Yeah. No, I understand that, but like you're not writing anything down. So I feel like I guess people had better memories back then. Maybe. Yeah. Who's gonna remember like who bet for who and how much they put down? That's a lot to remember. Their books are invisible. Uh, yeah, this scene was oozing with such toxic masculinity and was a, a, t- a hair unnecessary. I'm O. Can you like expand on that? The scene in which we are endeared, introduced to, and endeared to Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character is through a display of physical strength through boxing. Mm. And it is only because he is the underdog and yet can physically overtake another sailor um, that, that, ah, yes, we're, now we're supposed to like him. Um, kind of going back to some other themes that we've, that we've already discussed, um, we're supposed to like this character because of this kind of display of masculinity. So they make it clear that in this boxing scene and, you know, several times throughout um, after after we meet the cook, that he is physically strong. And you'd think that kind of physicality, that kind of, you know, strength training type of skill would come into play a little bit more than it does. He does do something, and we know that he's going to do something because we spend a lot of time with him, getting to know him. But the focus of his character is, I can I can punch him in the face. And that's why we're supposed to like him disagree with that str- not strong but i would disagree with that point in that 
and we'll get a little bit more into this into the next scene about basically how he is just you know he's a cook and he joined so that he could you know serve his country and they made him a cook and there's the overtones of racism because he is a black so or a black right. sailor I enjoyed that aspect of his character development the part that i didn't necessarily think was necessary was was the boxing because that's our introduction to him that's our window into his into him and into what what everybody else what all of the sailors uh, think of as as positive traits so usually i'm pretty sympathetic to your opinion sarah but i would also disagree with you and i also see toxic masculinity in other movies we've covered but i think what we like about dory miller here is not that he can physically overpower the other guy but rather that he is fighting for respect, which we talk mm-hmm. about later. He doesn't back down from a challenge and he doesn't give up even when the odds are against him. And that's what's endearing to him, not the fact that he can beat up somebody. That's my Yeah, reason. I agree. That makes sense. That is, I mean, that is why I find him as endearing as a character. I can't that. And I mean, that. we'll also point out the fact that the guy who he's fighting against is, I think he, they even call it out, he's a mechanic. He shits rivets or something like that is what they say. Mm. So it's more of an underdog fight necessarily. So next scene is Doris Miller getting Gosh. patched up by yeah. Evelyn. Mm-hmm. This is where we get his backstory that he, you know, like I said earlier, that he joined the Navy to join, to, you know, serve his country, see the world, and they made him a cook. He said he never even fired a gun the whole time during his training. He has basically just been, you know, there to cook and to clean up after other soldiers, after they eat. And he has, like, he feels like he's been put down, basically, even though he's supposed to be part of the same you know, uh, Navy. Yeah. I mean, I like he was put down, obviously. <laughs> right. I, I get the feeling like he feels like if someone would just give him a chance to prove himself and he could get the respect that he wants, which is what happens later. And after, so after she, he gets all patched up, we next get a shot of Danny approaching her little clinic in full uniform. And you can just see from his eyes that he's come to tell her that Rafe is dead. That's right. And so they have a sweet scene where like where they're talking about Rafe and you know how he was always protecting Danny. And this is when it reveal like Evelyn knows that he volunteered for this, whereas Danny thought that he was assigned to this. And is there you go, Rafe trying to protect me once again. Yeah, there's a lot of telling and not showing about their relationship in this part. Mm-hmm. We really have like two scenes, one of them as kids and one of them as bros. I don't think it's a very solid foundation to build the love triangle on, in my opinion. It worked for me. Okay. I have feelings about the love triangle, but we'll get to that. So this is one of those moments. I'm such a sucker for it. When, you know, Josh Hartnett told Kate Beckinsale that that Rafe died, I really like this scene from from a filmmaking perspective, as like dorky as that sounds, because there's just this wordless communication mm-hmm. that happens and it fully takes yeah. advantage of uh, the visual medium uh, while also packing an emotional punch and like I said, I'm just I'm just a sucker for it. And this is, I think, where we also get like, and I, I should have talked about this earlier, but the very, you know, it that theme music that permeates this whole movie, the da, na, 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 all that, stuff. <laughs> <laughs> which, like, yeah, it's it works for me. And I found out, you know, as when I'm watching the credits, oh, it's Hans Zimmer. Of course, that's why it works. I think I've seen other movies where people are delivered sad news and they are crying and there is no dialogue. Mm-hmm. 
I agree yeah. with Sarah that it works really well that way, but I also kind of feel like that way a screenwriter doesn't have to write dialogue for when someone's been told that the love of their life just died. Because that would be kind of tough to write. I don't know what you would say. That would be a part, you know, tough dialogue. But writers have, have I think. Greater challenges. <laughs> yeah, that's why they're the yeah. professionals. So we get a shot in uh, a bar where they all give a toast to Rafe, photo up on the wall, and, you know, have it marked as killed in action. Yes, as opposed to the ones that say killed in training, which I thought mm-hmm. was interesting. So they include yeah. that. Then we go back to the to the Japanese fleet, which is preparing to launch. They're sending out messages for the U.S. to intercept. They already know. So here's where we get our first spy action in this movie. That's right. Just like Tora, 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 it's mostly signals intelligence for what the mm-hmm. Japanese are doing. Yes. Say they're going to send out messages for the Jap- uh, for the U.S. to intercept. So they know that they can already read it. But they send it to, and that they're potential targets for an attack everywhere in the Pacific. And they say, and, you know, include Hawaii too, just to confuse them even further. So it's not like we're sh- trying to say it's everywhere but here by sitting and, you know, get, make causing suspicion that way. Mm-hmm. And next we go to someplace familiar to all of us, D- back to DC and mm-hmm. a building that has oh. a giant sign that says Navy Department. Where is this? I've like, I've never seen this before. Oh, look at me. I think they might have just made it up for the movie. Yeah. I think I remember seeing that in Spy Factors versus Fiction Research. And so we meet our uh, character who is basically the stand-in for all the U.S. Navy intelligence people. It was Captain Harold Thurman, played by Dan Aykroyd. That's right. And he's like, I'm not, I'm not buying it. I don't think it's an attack here or attack in, over in the Pacific that place. So we go to three months later in the movie theater, and the movie playing is The Great Dictator starring, what's his face? Charlie Chaplin. That's it. Come on, yeah. Christian. Ah. <laughs> uh, but before the movie, they have a newsreel showing footage of planes getting shot down, which of course makes both Evelyn and Danny, who are in the theater, think about Rafe. And they both exit the theater and run into each other. Mm-hmm. I appreciated that moment where they leave because showing that those characters were affected by seeing that you know didn't just move the story along but it teases the reality of ptsd and so i appreciated that i thought they would actually address it a little bit more and i'm kind of bummed that they didn't but it turns out that that was just a plot device to get them to stand next to each other and talk (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't need to be PTSD so serious. It's more that they saw something that reminded them of their buddy yeah. and love their life, so they leave. It works. I don't yeah. think we were so enlightened about PTSD even in 2000. They run into each other. They mention that both have been avoiding each other, have dinner, and they start talking about Rafe. And then we cut over to the other soldiers who are out. Red is proposing to his girl Betty and... He can't quite get it out. Yeah, but basically what Evelyn is getting at is life needs to go on and she needs to go on living and can't be sad about Rafe forever. I think it's actually a pretty healthy. It's very common for people to say, oh, she's my only love. I'll never love anyone else. I think it was true in Titanic. Going back to that. (laughs) How do you know since you haven't seen it? Because I've heard that complaint about Titanic was... This old lady who's like, yeah, I married some other guy, but I didn't really love him. I only loved Jack, who I met when I was 17. It's like, (laughs) sorry, her husband. I guess she didn't love you. Watch the movie and we'll see how you feel. (laughs) As they're having dinner, or Evelyn and Danny, that is, spotted by the other pilots and nurses, they get a little weird about it. 
All right, yeah, it's time to go. But as she leaves, she forgets her handkerchief, which Danny sees, grabs, and then waits an inordinately long time to try to return to her, probably like midnight or something. He was enduringly awkward here. Sarah, what did you think about this move? They get dinner together, and I'm like, oh no, they're going to be a couple now. (laughs) And that's why, back to Ben Affleck didn't sleep with her, and I thought, oh my god, that's why he didn't sleep with her, so that she stays a virgin, and so she has this special quality to her, and now I am super angry at this movie. <laughs> Not that I have an issue with her moving on, because as Zach said, uh, that's a sign of healthy mental state, for lack of a better word. But these characters have not interacted with each other at all. I do not believe their relationship at any point in this movie. I do not buy it. I do not believe that they're in love with each other, um, despite the fact that with the handkerchief, he is kind of endearing. I don't buy it. I hate that, yeah, previous plot decisions were made to make her virginal and perfect, and I did not care for that. On the flip side, vis-a-vis everyone telling her to move on, I thought, you know what? The person she loved died. She's allowed to take a couple of minutes, give the homegirl some space to grieve. Mm. Everyone grieves a little bit differently. And other people pressuring her to move on, I felt, was not necessarily what friends should be doing. I see. I have some thoughts. <laughs> so, okay, how do you think the movie would have gone over if Danny was portrayed more as, like, a villain? By which I mean, he's, like, this sleazy dude who, like, makes a move on his best friend's girl because he sees that she's emotionally vulnerable, going to be a shoulder to cry on, and generally comes off not as romantic, but as, like, slimy. And while you're thinking about that answer, I would like to mention Colditz, which is a miniseries that we covered on my other podcast, Tuesday Night Gaming, plug, 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 which was about Tom Hardy and Damian Lewis are two soldiers in World War II, and Tom Hardy is stuck in prison, and Damian Lewis comes back and tells Tom Hardy's girlfriend that Tom Hardy died so that he can make a move in on her. A much more interesting story than this one. I, I think it's, and I don't know how common of a phenomenon this is, but I think the plot has come up in, you know, this type of military love triangle has come up in a couple movies. I think Coming Home is the name of a movie where it, that also happened. Mm-hmm. So as, as pure speculation, would be interested to know if it's as common as is portrayed in cinema. Okay, but so do you guys have any thoughts about Danny being bad? I think it would be in a completely different movie that I don't know if I'd be interested in. I don't know. It's it's a different it would, movie. It would definitely be a different movie. The dynamic would have been different from the jump. Part of what's... You wouldn't have the bromance. You wouldn't have bromance. Love the bromance. Also, Josh Hartnett as an evil guy, I'd still buy it. I mean, look at that cute face. Yeah. <laughs> well, right, you would probably want to cast somebody else. Yeah could play it because i think he could i'm i'm, I'm joking stuff. i'm joking yeah, yeah. i'm i'm uh i'm joking anyway so good we go back to dan Aykroyd with at naval intelligence we find out that the japanese fleet is missing they don't know exactly where it is mm-hmm. and we next go to danny testing out the guns on his p40 and, and then evelyn comes into the hangar dressed in a like very fancy red dress yeah she's looking good 
all the guys are acting awkward. Actually, they make comments about how you like you shouldn't be dating your best friends, your your dead friends, gal. One says, you know, I'd come back to life so fast if someone did that to me. Yeah, it's already communicating to him that maybe this isn't such a good idea, even if Rafe doesn't come back from the dead. I don't buy it. At at this point in the movie, they've interacted with each other for 0.2 seconds and see no chemistry. I mean, I feel like they have as about as much interaction at, th- at this point as uh, Rafe and Evelyn did in the beginning of the movie when we, like, we, are intro- when, you know, we are introduced to them. You might recall, I did not care for that. <laughs> fair enough, well, fair yeah. enough. That's not uncommon in movies. I actually thought it was interesting that Danny and Evelyn spend more time together like in Meat Space, mm-hmm. like in the real world as opposed to letter writing, than Evelyn and Rafe did. Takes Evelyn flying. They see Pearl Harbor at sunset from the air, which is beautiful. Pulls a uh, Star Fox and does a barrel roll. Yeah, I was going to bring up a Star Fox if you didn't. <laughs> and they mm-hmm. you know, hi- go and hide in the parachute hangar, end up kissing, and then have sex in the parachute hangar. The okay. parachute hangar itself made me actually laugh out loud. Uh, <laughs> okay. No, uh, imagining that on a military base. I mean, it was. The set was beautiful. I don't mm-hmm. think any military hangar <laughs> looked that beautiful. Uh, well, it's still a Michael Bay movie, no matter where it takes <laughs> place. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, then we go to the morning after, where they're, you know, feeling kind of awkward around each other. Not sure how this they're feeling necessarily, but Danny is like, you know, I really like you, and oh, okay, you know, why not give this a try? This can be a new start for us in this new place. Yeah, the note I have is that Evelyn's not sure about her feelings, which is fair enough. I think, is this when he's gushing about how uh, excited he is about her? Because that was admittedly quite endearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And men, men, take notes. Oh, you like this, Sarah? This worked for you? <laughs> Th- this worked for me. <laughs> okay, interesting. Well, I've heard it before from other sources. Back to the spy stuff. We have the Japanese are sending, you know, a Japanese spy to Oahu. He like books an air tour of Oahu, and he has like a camera hidden in a in a case. Then he like gets photos of Pearl Harbor from the air. Sends those photos back to Japan. It's just like Paul Rudd in The Catcher was a Spy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next, we get what I'm just gonna call the love montage, where they you know have all these beautiful shots of them in Hawaii, swimming and spending time with each other. And I like this part where their car is stuck in the sand. But then at the yeah. end of it, Evelyn is sick. In the bathroom for a very long time. Back to the Navy Department. They're looking for the Japanese fleet. Uh, Captain Thurman, uh, a.k.a. Dan Aykroyd, is you know, say, has, saying he has a theory about where they're going. And he thinks it'd be Pearl Harbor. And, he's, and when they ask, why is this? Well, it's what I would do. Really liked the description of intelligence as playing chess in the dark. I thought that was a really nice visual. There are, <laughs> there or are. Ironically, blink- lack of a visual because it's in the dark. <laughs> there are blink and you'll miss it, like intelligence analyst sections, <laughs> and it felt like every so often the director was just like, "We need to foreshadow some war stuff," and then they'd cut back <laughs> to the actual movie. Yeah, compared to Tora Tora Tora, where there'd be a whole scene about a specific thing, or this they just mention it and then move on. It also the thing about. Playing Chess in the Dark reminded me of other movies we've covered where it's about judgment calls, like 13 Days and Zero Dark Thirty. But when it comes to a war, suddenly it becomes much more prescient 
about decisions made on a very short term basis. Yeah. Is this the scene where it ends with like go go get me more intelligence? Yeah. I agree that they shouldn't make such a huge decision on functionally a spidey sense. Um, <laughs> but it is that guy's job to make decisions based on limited information. And I thought, go get me more information or, or whatever it was, was kind of a dumb command. <laughs> right, yeah. Dan Eckhart even says, yes, we're trying. <laughs> I think it shows the disconnect between the analysts and their bosses, where their bosses just want more <laughs> of everything. And they don't care what it takes to get it. So we go back to the Japanese fleet. They're preparing to launch. It's intercut with, you know, Pearl Harbor. Get this Japanese dentist who's in Oahu, who can see Pearl Harbor outside of his window. Gets a call from Japan. He's not sure who it is. And they're asking him questions about how many ships are there? What's the weather like? And this is all intercepted. Uh, and there's actually a young Japanese translator who's like, intercepting the call and transiting as yeah they say he's not a spy he's just asking around they also say are there flat ships i oh, yes. carriers he says mm -hmm. no so this scene was really interesting for a few reasons so first i was surprised that we never got to see the consequences of it like i thought he mm -hmm. was going to get arrested and thrown in prison the fact that it didn't really go anywhere makes me kind of wonder why it was there in the movie i mean i was glad to have more spy stuff and less romance stuff so as much of that as possible is nice Mm -hmm. Also, this reminds me of a book called Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. Okay. And one of the things that he points out is there's a default truth where even if it's weird that someone calls you up and starts asking you things outside of your window, it wouldn't occur to you that this guy's a spy because how often would you ever meet a spy like in real life? So you're just mm -hmm. going to answer his questions, especially back in the more innocent time of the 1940s. Yeah. And next we get the scene where we find out that Rafe is actually alive. Danny gets like a telegram from him saying it was the first that he could get word out. So Danny doesn't tell Evelyn right away, right? She just gets no. surprised. I think he finds out pretty much the same time as she does. I think so. Okay. And neither one of them look happy. I well, just want to <laughs> jump into the screen and tell them just be happy for two seconds this individual who you are both very close to, you thought was dead, isn't dead. Be happy for two seconds. You can deal with your relationship drama in a minute. Someone who's you thought was dead has come back to life. Let's celebrate. Let's live in the present. And let's celebrate that for a minute before <laughs> focusing on relationship drama. To be fair, they probably are happy, but they also have just very confused feelings about it on a whole. Yeah, it's like, what does this mean for us? I guess it's a sure, little bit self-indulgent uh, that they're like, oh, how does this affect me rather than affect him? Yeah, if, I guess my, my point is that that's a perfectly reasonable feeling, but I would hope that that wouldn't be my first feeling. I would hope my first feeling wouldn't be, oh no, and now what am I going to do about my relationship? It's going to be, oh, thank God you're alive. I feel like it's also more That's of just a sh general shock, too. Like, because they definitely thought he was dead. And so if you see someone who you think was dead, especially for Evelyn, I get the feeling like she sees him and she thinks it's like she's hallucinating. That's pretty shocking. I think I, I don't actually I don't know how either of you are going to answer this, but Team Danny or Team Rafe? Is neither an I've, option? I've, I've thought about it and I don't have a good answer. And... 
the reason it, the circumstance of the relationship um it was funny as i was watching the movie i was like i have danny or my hashtag right um <laughs> from a <laughs> from a who i like better perspective that's a different question if they were both in front of me who would i pick <laughs> is a different question than given the circumstances that they found themselves in because again i didn't think that you know we had a whole lot of relationship development um so i don't have a good answer yet i will answer the other question then <laughs> the one that you proposed would i pick yeah if it were me mm-hmm. uh i do have an answer what a guess i don't know actually go well just oh, <laughs> uh i'm team Danny. okay <laughs> I yes. Danny. well i yeah. pick Danny. Oh, team um, Danny all the way <laughs> i thought you were yeah. going to say rafe because danny and her have no chemistry <laughs> well <laughs> That's why I mean, it's did, a different yeah. question. Like, at this moment in time in the movie, who do I want her with? Uh, that's a different kind of question <laughs> than who ultimately do I think is a better, like, like, who would I pick up two of them? I think is a different question. I would pick Danny. Because I just generally find him more endearing. I like that he was willing to be vulnerable. I, I like the mm-hmm. kind of sheepishness sort of paired with uh, confidence. I'm being very revealing about <laughs> this podcast. <laughs> so I worry, uh, fellas. Whereas, anyway, so I, I would pick Danny. <laughs> yeah, the classic American, like Captain America, like do goodery type thing. I, I was talking. I wasn't talking about at this uh, moment, but like, I figured this is yeah. a good moment since hey, yeah. we have both of them now alive. I figured this is a good moment to just ask. Yeah, that's. And it was funny, it was at this point in the movie that I thought about it. <laughs> and I had this I had this dilemma within myself of hmm, this is an interesting question. This is a great example of something that I see a lot in movies now that I've yeah. caught on to it. It's depictions of men, especially when there's romance involved, is there's Luke Skywalkers and there's mm-hmm. Han Solos. Yeah. Okay. So Luke Skywalker mm. is really nice, but yeah. kind of boring. And Han Solo yeah. is kind of a dick, but he's like exciting and fun and all the ladies love him. As someone who relates to Luke Skywalker, how dare you? Well, come on, it's true. I mean, Luke hashtag Luke boring. Skywalker. So I also think that I mean I won't get into my Star Wars <laughs> who should end up with who, but it's controversial. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the Luke Skywalker kind of girl. Yeah, Yeah, I'm picking up on that. But I will say that I appreciate that this movie actually didn't chicken out and had Evelyn make a choice, which is what I was expecting. I don't think she did make a choice. I mean, she didn't. She didn't get to. She didn't get make the choice, did she? She didn't have any agency in her life decision. She wants to raise a kid with. Sarah's got some feelings about that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I suppose that's true, actually. Yeah. yeah. When yeah, you put it that yeah. way. Well, yeah. let's get there. We've got the whole battle together still. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, no, it's, it's fine. I mean, I'm the one who broached this topic of who. That was a more interesting question than what I asked earlier, which is who your favorite Churchill? <laughs> <laughs> We all have questions we want to know the answers to. Uh, we go back to the Japanese fleet, and they're picking up radio from Honolulu, and they make the point of, all right, if there was any suspicion, we would hear about it on the radio. Mm-hmm. 
And we next go to a tiki bar where Rafe is seeing the rest of his pilot friends. You can see that he's had a few already. He's telling war stories, but then also starts making comments once he sees Danny there about how Danny was good enough to take care of his girl. I was like, oh, I'm not liking this. <laughs> he is Took real like, good care. Yeah. And just realized yeah, that we didn't. I didn't get to hear your hashtag Team Annie or hashtag. This is, is neither an option. <laughs> yeah, well, I would have preferred neither, but I would agree with you that Danny is better. Ben Affleck is came off as like a frat bro in this movie, which I did not find very attractive. Mm, yeah, yeah, I mean, especially here at this moment. Mm-hmm. Punches. Danny, and uh, there starts a whole bar fight, and then we get basically the only Hawaiian person in the movie at all, who's the bartender, who calls for the MPs. Yeah, that didn't occur to me, but that is true. Yep. Yeah, that also didn't occur to me. That's a good point. I mean, we did at least have other Asian people in the movie who were not the Japanese. Neither of them get names. Actually, yeah, none of them are right. the people like uh, people of color in Hawaii, or other than Kubagu and Judy, obviously, but get names. They at least get lines, but they don't have names. So we have, yeah, the interpreter, we have the Japanese tur- uh, dentist, and then we have, yeah, the Jap- Hawaiian bartender. So the MPs arrive, they break out of the fight, Danny and Rafe say, oh, they're going to throw us in the brig, let's get out of here. So they at least have enough sense to get out of there and are- aren't still trying to fight each other. Yeah, they go from drunken fighting to drunk driving. Good times. <laughs> so they drive out of there, and then we get... Very dramatic calendar flip. I wrote down <laughs> that calendar flipping was very dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's a Michael Bay movie. Yeah. Which I did not know going into it that it was a Michael Bay movie. Uh, at the end, when his name came up, I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That tracks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's funny. He's not at peak Michael Bay yet. I, think I that feel was like hit. he was already with like Bad Boys and Bad Boys 2. Hmm. This is him actually toning it down. It definitely is toned down compared to other Michael Bay. And then he goes back up to peak with Transformers. Did not care for Transformers. I could finish the movie. (sighs) We next go to a Japanese pilot who's like writing a letter back to his family. I appreciated this, actually, as you get some personality into the Japanese pilots. This is also when we see scary drums, or rather, we hear the scary drums. I don't think they're scary drums. I think they're just like Japanese drums, like taiko drums. Sarah, tiebreaker. I don't remember the drums. Okay, fine. I remember thinking... Oh, I'll, I'll give you dramatic drums, not, not not scary drums. Okay, fine. I don't remember feeling afraid. I do remember thinking that the depiction, they tried to make it, you know, multidimensional, but I think it was a little bit one note. It felt like the movie wanted us to have the reaction, oh, these are bad guys who believe that sacrificing themselves for their country is bad. But we in the United States also honor our military, too. And I think it's uh, an example of more cultural othering and a lack of understanding. Interesting. That I saw I, I, the, yeah. the exact opposite reaction is that I actually like that they got some personality in that or not personality, but they like had some insight into yeah. them and their viewpoints and them drinking sake before they fly and the tying in their headband. So I feel I saw as, you know, all right, mm. you, you're giving some, you know, just see, seeing at least a little bit of what their thought process was. That is interesting, because I took as, like, oh, so they're identifying the enemy by this headwear, and we know these are bad planes because there's a Japanese flag on it. <laughs> like, that's 
I mean, um, that is what their design was <laughs> in real fair. life. <laughs> I wonder if the perspective that I came to it with was partially from my Middle East background and mm-hmm. learning. You know, there's a fine line between saying that you understand the culture and otherizing it. Like, mm-hmm. I remember one class I took about Middle East culture, quote unquote was, you know, showing someone the bottom of your feet is rude. So don't like put feet up on your desk Mm -hmm. or whatever. That's what it is in in Middle Eastern culture. I thought, Hmm. that's kind of rude in American culture as well. Like Mm -hmm. take take a breath and take a second before, you know, have have a second of introspection. The military, you know, came up a lot. All these, Mm -hmm. it's those people that are willing to sacrifice themselves and, that's bad when they do it, but it's good when we do it. So that's the that's the perspective mm-hmm. and baggage that I I brought to this. <laughs> I'm wondering what you would have thought of Tora 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 now, actually, because that movie is pretty much a half Japanese, half American production, and so you get equal oh. time with both sides. But it comes sort of at the expense of any sort of characterization of anyone. Mm. Interesting. That's right. That story reminds me of a conversation I had with a guy from Tunisia, and he talked about how in Tunisia, the military is not respected. Hmm. It's seen as that's where all the screw-ups go who can't find a job somewhere else, and they basically just do what the government tells them to do, as opposed to free, independent thinkers like people who are not in the military. So it's quite a contrast to Americans, especially in a post-9-11 era. Back to the movie. So they, yeah, they tie their headbands around their heads, and they launch the planes. There's a lot of excitement. And we next go to are two radar operators who we met last week in Korotora Tora. They're picking up a large signal, too large to be just one plane, so they call it up the chain, and the guy at the, at the, who answers the phone says, oh, that's probably just the fleet of B-17s that's coming in from the mainland. I did like how the guy was like, that's a lot of B-17s, which they did <laughs> not say in Tora Tora Tora. Yeah. It felt very real. And we get to go to Admiral Kimmel playing golf, and we and as he's playing golf, he gets a notification that one of their destroyers sunk a miniature submarine uh, trying to enter Pearl Harbor, which we did see last week in Tora Tora Tora. This is where a lot of the stuff that is from Tora Tora is going to actually start overlapping from what we saw here. And we next go back to Dan Aykroyd, who's decrypting a message, which says, you know, destroy the you know, all decoder machines after you receive this message. And he's like, oh, the Japanese are anticipating war. Did we? Yeah. <laughs> Not just anticipating one, actively preparing yeah, for one. Right. Runs yeah. out. And next we get, uh, you know, Zeros. Japanese planes are called Zeros, or at least the fighters. The bombers are called something else, if I recall. I don't know what they were called. Mm-hmm. But they're flying through the island. We actually see a shot of them flying through Kualoa Ranch, which is on the wrong side of the island for them if they're flying in from the north. That's all right. But Kualoa Ranch is famous for a lot of stuff filming there, including Jurassic Park. Okay. Yeah. So... There's a contrast here where the planes fly by Boy Scouts and a baseball game. The baseball the... field, I've, I think I looked at it once, and I don't think it's a baseball field where it's portrayed that there's this, like right near the base. And I think the nearest baseball field is one near my house. So I've always sort of imagined, <laughs> all right, if this was the actual scene, it would have been the baseball field going up to my the hill to my island or to my house since I live, you know, right on the mountain behind Pearl Harbor. I can see a baseball field from my window. <laughs> Is it the same baseball field? No. 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 There's more Probably than one. Not. 
Yeah. But yeah. anyway, the reason why I bring up the baseball field is because in History Buffs, which is the YouTube video I used for Spy Fact versus Fiction last week, he mm -hmm. pointed to this as one of the examples of like the flag waving patriotism of Pearl Harbor. Because mm. in contrast to Tora Tora Tora, it was Asian farmers. Right. Right. So well, I Asian thought American plantation yes, workers. Yes, you're you're right. There is a contrast there. I don't really see a baseball game and Boy Scouts as like flag waving patriotism. I didn't really see where he was coming from on that. We'll give you that. Yes, it would have been nice to actually show actual like I like I said before, very little actual Asian characters. Even though Hawaii was largely populated by Asian immigrants, especially plantation workers at that time. Mm -hmm. So I can kind of see it, but also I just like the reaction of the ordinary people seeing planes and what's going on. Mm -hmm. And next we go back to uh, Captain Thurman. Uh, I think it's uh, oh, my note here says hostility is imminent, but I don't remember who gets this message. I, I, presume I, also, it's wrote I also wrote hostility is imminent. <laughs> I wrote I, what I'm guessing is an autocorrect because I wrote broken relationship period hostility is imminent oh yes period. yes no, that, that is him decrypting more uh right stuff yeah yeah it's like a teletype thing mm -hmm. yeah i remember that so evelyn is still asleep in her house apparently she slept on the couch that night because she was so stressed out that is a nice house that they live at. right well it's like all the nurses live in that one house but yes it is a nice house they almost certainly would have been living in some kind of barracks or military housing in real life, uh, I think. I mean, the military housing in Hawaii is pretty nice. Oh, man. Okay. Yeah, right? There's uh, way more nurses than just the five of them or so. so. <laughs> yeah. And we go to D Doris Miller, who's, you know, serving the captain his food. And the captain tells him, you know, we're proud. The ship's proud of you, son. Yeah, the captain's so nice. Mm -hmm. So next we get a bunch of shots of, like, all the sailors seeing like the planes flying in and, and then there's also Rafe and Danny asleep in the car there's a photographer taking shots of just the water or, the, or something nearby and yeah, the photographer looked really familiar um, I think he's been in like comedy movies I don't remember probably. his name and, and I don't see. really care to look it up I'm just saying he looked familiar to me <laughs> <laughs> and then so yeah we have the planes you know approaching battleship row and one of them launches a torpedo and two guys who are on out, the outside of the ship like cleaning it or watch it as it approaches the ship and hits the shot following the torpedo was actually kind of cool mm -hmm. oh yeah yeah it was cool the hey. torpedo seemed to go too slowly in the movie <laughs> i feel like it would have gone faster in real life it, I mean, it's probably moving faster than we think. The shot of the island with all the planes coming in was really haunting. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And, and I liked that it a lot. is, after I watched this movie, I rewatched the trailer, because I very clearly remember the trailer, and also the music video for Faith Hill's There You Be, which was like the basically equivalent of that song from Titanic by Celine Dion <laughs> for this movie. you are going to say Top but, Gun. <laughs> uh, that too. Well, no, because it's not like Top Gun where they play the opening of that every, you know, 10 minutes. Oh. Yeah, fair point. <laughs> but they do incorporate the, you know, the main theme from the movie into the into that, into there you'll be. But, uh, but that shot of all the planes coming in, like just and, like seeing the island is like the first shot of that trailer. So it's a very iconic shot, as is another shot that we'll get to not too far. Yeah, Michael Bay but, movies are always good on the visual side, mm -hmm. and this is no exception. Yeah, so they everyone gets 
wakes up from that. They get to their battle stations. Rafe and Danny are like wake up when they hear the explosion. And they all jump into the car. The photographer says that he's from like the Navy newsreel. Admiral Kimmel sees the planes going in. And then we get to probably the most iconic shot from this movie where the Japanese bomber has the little like card of the Arizona. He's looking through his scope. And then we see him launch it, and we follow the bomb as it goes down into the Arizona and hits the deck, pierces through the deck, hits the munitions um, storage. That's right. It doesn't detonate right away, though. One of Doris Miller's friends is there, and mm-hmm. he like sees it right before he dies, which is and it just explodes, sad. and it's a huge explosion. Right. So the photographer, whose name I don't, I really am surprised that he does not have a name. <laughs> I'm not. There are already so many other characters. He's like taking photo uh, footage. They get over to the airfield, and it's only at this point that Evelyn wakes up. And they they see all the devastation. They're like, "All right, we need to get moving." They did have and... a very high lack of readiness, like a surprising lack of naval readiness. And I know that exposition was supposed to be there, but are we really ever that? Un- like people were just like well, chilling reading the newspaper um, well from Tora 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 we actually see and which was supposed to be a pretty accurate depiction of what's happening like people on a Sunday people are gone ho- or like on a weekend no one's there uh, like people yeah. gone home at noon so in a way yes it seems pretty yeah. authentic yes yeah that's correct so Red, the stutterer, is trying to wake up everyone else. Like he's like he's up. He sees the planes out the window. His stutter is interfering with him trying to wake up everyone, saying that you know the Japanese are here. So do you think this was supposed to be funny? This scene, slightly, or just slightly dramatic irony. Yeah, it could be that too. This is when Doris Miller finds his captain, who's been in, heavily injured. He's telling, giving me instructions. You know, make sure that my XO knows that he's in command now. And then he's giving all these other instructions. And he's like, and Doris Miller is just like, you know, you, you trained us well. Everyone's where they need to be. And then the captain dies. If this were Star Trek, you'd have been like, Doris Miller, you're in charge now. <laughs> the Enterprise is yours. Uh, but no, this is real. Well. A version of real life, and they follow the chain of command. Yep. You see some planes that are shooting up the hospital, and they're firing on the nurses who are trying to get to the to their station. I'm uh, so impressed with. I think this is much more of a waving the flag moment okay. than the shot of the kids in the baseball scene when everyone starts running to their stations. Mm-hmm. They're running straight into danger, literally through. Mm-hmm gunfire people are dying on the way um both you know men in uniform and the nurses are running uh we're watching people die try to protect everybody else ben affleck who as a character uh almost died in a very similar situation and is just itching to get back on a plane and that's why america is the best you're stealing words from Alec Guinness, or I keep saying Alec Guinness, Alec Baldwin later in the movie. <laughs> yeah, the love triangle is like almost completely forgotten about. I mean, which starts. is good. I'm glad, like, because in this moment, all of that falls away. Yeah. And it should. Like, well, yeah. you're in the middle of a war. You're not going to mm. be worrying about that. Hopefully. If you are, then you're just really petty and you should not be there. 
really petty, worried about the love of your life dying in the middle of a war. I think they could have played it off so that it's not. You petty. want more romance? Oh. No, I'm not saying that I wanted it. I'm just surprised that it wasn't could there. Have. Yeah, I appreciated that the focus was on rallying around the flag. That felt appropriate. But you're right; they well, so they could have they could have made poor yeah. choices. So I was going to mention this later, but I guess I can mention it now is. Something I think the reason why this movie is so derided is that it doesn't commit to being a love story or a war movie, if that makes sense. I think the title caused a lot of resentment because people went to Pearl Harbor expecting to be a movie about Pearl Harbor, not the love triangle. Mm. If they had called it something else and you went in expecting it to be about a love triangle that happened to be taking place during Pearl Harbor, I think it would have been much better received. Well, well this, maybe a little better. This section of the movie feels like a Pearl Harbor movie, and they don't shy away from showing the destruction and oh yeah, the death and you know our newspaper friend. We see him die on screen, and the the battle sequence goes on for a really long time, much longer than I I had expected even. Pilots get, trying to get to their planes, but the Zeros blow up a lot of planes, and then finally Rafe and Danny arrive in their field. And this is also where we get Doris Miller gets his m big moment. You know, he sees the someone getting sh you know on the guns who gets killed, and he jumps up on the guns, and he is well. It's clear that he has no training in using this gun because he, he's not firing in bursts. He's just pulling the hammer, keeping the hammer down, pulling that trigger. And he does end up shooting down one of the planes. No. I would have liked a little bit more clarity that he wasn't trained on the gun. You could tell from well, it. Just like for me. Said, they said, or he said, I should say. I've never heard him fire a gun. Scene. Yeah. Oh, that's that true. I've never that's fired true. a gun. Yeah. So he's just in this moment. This is, yeah, he's, you know, stepping in to fill a need because he is a hero, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, during this scene, is where we get a sighting of a dog on the West Virginia. And I'm like, oh no, this dog. Oh no, I am invested in this dog. Don't die, dog. It's like the dog yeah, from Independence Day. So the nurses finally get into the hospital, and they're trying to get the patients away from the windows. They, like, sh shelter them with the mattresses from the beds and as they get bombed. This scene, we go back to the airfield. Uh, one of our pilot other characters billy gets a bomb drops like right next to him but it takes a while doesn't blow up immediately and he's like no it's a dud and then boom he's he's gone yeah i think that would have hit a little bit harder if we didn't just have that happen on the arizona mm. with dory's yeah. friend but we've known billy a little bit better no but i'm saying the shock oh. that it's actually a just... tiny oh yeah i was a yeah. minuscule amount better so we see that Oklahoma is turning over. It's starting to sink. There's a sailor who can't swim, which is not out of the ordinary at this time. That's right. And he's like saying, I, I can't swim. I can't swim. And this is where I would have sworn at least one of you had seen Titanic before. So I could start making these comparisons. Because this is where you get the heavy Titanic comparisons with like the ships turning over and people like sliding down the decks. It's very reminiscent of Titanic, but also probably of how a ship actually sinks. I've been trying to really quickly think of a substantive comparison I've made that I was like, yeah, that was a good comparison. Can't think of one. Danny and Rafe get in the car. Apparently the, the air airfield that uh, Earl is at hasn't been hit yet. 
And so this is where I start to realize, oh, these are supposed to be those two characters in Tora Tora who drive off the Hall of Eva to get their planes in a car and like you right. know, go over to get their themselves up in the air. So they drive over, and then we get some more shots of like sailors who are trapped in the ship. We get the American flag in the water. Hashtag not subtle at all. Well, it's just interesting that it came out pre-9-11, because that's right, very reminiscent. Right. I mean, it's a, I feel like if this movie had come out in the post-9-11 world, would have gotten a different reception. It may be like, okay, now we'd probably people would still deride it, but at, in that moment, it would probably have been more critically acclaimed with that, with the, all the patriotism that, you know, is mm-hmm. just surging through this movie. It's funny that you mention 9-11 again, because watching the sequence of events, the absolute destruction, it was mm-hmm. kind of hard to watch. And it very much mm-hmm. reminded me of the day of 9-11. We were screaming. There was jumping off things. There were brave men and women running towards danger. Um, it felt reminiscent of an event that hadn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad it worked so well for you. Yeah, this part mm-hmm. had... Um, so I mentioned, I've had a whole host of feelings <laughs> about this movie. You know, I mentioned that they spent more time than I would have thought on the destruction, I guess, makes sense in a movie called Pearl Harbor, that a chunk mm-hmm. of the film would be dedicated to the horror there. But it feels like it's whatever the opposite of romanticized is. Um, mm. Felt gritty and yeah, it felt meaningful. The fact I said that about a Michael Bay movie and the fact that I said that about a movie that I've criticized so harshly for its anti-feminist stance, I'm like, felt things inside uh, when I saw these people dying. Go America. It's what I was feeling at this point in the movie. I mean, yeah. Quite the contrast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So FDR gets word about the attack happening and they're like, how bad is it? It's like, it's still not over. Right. Hey guys, what's your favorite Churchill? Back back to the hospital. Evelyn's kind of taking charge here. She saves a man by applying pressure to his neck wound because his artery, like she basically puts her fingers in his artery to clog the bleed, so to stop it. Uh, Like people, people keep at this point asking for him or not people. Doctors keep asking for hemostat. Hemostat. I was like, what is a hemostat? Apparently, it's a clamp to control bleeding. Danny and Ray finally get to. the airfield with Earl and like everyone gets a bunch of guns. They hide in a, uh, what do you, I guess a bunker of sorts or not, not what would that be? Zach? Not a bunker where they're hiding with all these sandbags piled up. Yeah. I think you just say they hide behind sandbags. Okay. So they're hiding behind like the sandbags. Head? Yeah. Right. Because the planes are going past and they're like, we don't want to draw attention to us yet. Cause we aren't ready yet. Hide. And you can see goose with like this giant gun. And he was, it looks like he's like, he's going to fire. Actually, Carolyn, when he's watching, is like, she's definitely going to fire there. And they, and I, give thought them all so away. <laughs> I thought so, too. I thought so, too. Carolyn hasn't seen this movie either? <laughs> no, she'd seen it, but it's been a long time. Oh. Yeah. yeah. The idea that you could take down a plane with rifles is pretty silly. I, I mean, mean, not to say it's never been done, but the way they do it in the movie doesn't seem so plausible. Some zeros come to shoot up the field, and they hit a bunch of the planes. The photographer gets shot, but his camera, newsreel footage, or camera is still going, and actually, like, is, like, goes to him, like, dead in front of him. It's like, whoa, that's dark. Mm-hmm. But Danny and Ray finally get into the planes, and then, like, there's another guy, pilot, because there's four planes that are able to go go up. They, 
uh, Japanese shoot up one of them, and Danny and Rafe and Joe get into other other planes. And we're, I'm like, who's Joe? We've never met Joe before. Oh, no. And Car- Carolyn's like, oh, he's definitely going to die. <laughs> so Joe goes first. Yeah, when so, so the three of them were going to go up in the air. And because there are two characters that we care deeply about, and a third. <laughs> and one red like, shirt, what? yeah. Very clearly a red shirt. And you're like, oh, well, wah, wah. he's definitely going to die. And the fact that he goes first. Right. Yeah. The fact that he's named Joe made me wonder, like, was he just one of the crew before this and I just wasn't paying attention? No. I remember most of the other pilots. He's not one of them. Maybe it was a deleted scene. When there's stuff like that, that's what I usually put it down to. Or he's just the red shirt. Ensign Recky. Yeah. So finally get into the air this and so it's like them versus a bunch of other of zeros they split them up when that two of them are getting into the plane like i said before i'm really into the real cheesy bromance and they were like <laughs> i got you and the other one was like i got you and uh i <laughs> i enjoyed that uh, this is that's where great. like i yeah the the bromance works here where despite everything else that's going on between the two of them they're still wingmen and they're still going to support each other and help each other yeah, there's tons of Star Wars style dialogue here. Like we got <laughs> Danny, I got three on my six. I mm-hmm. can't shake him. He literally says, I can't shake him. And then here come the <laughs> subtitles again. Someone says, It's a long son of a gun. And someone else says, Let's get this backstabber. Yeah, well, I prefer those than the racial slurs they keep throwing at the Japanese. Mm-hmm. That's right. So they split them up. Uh, Rafe shouts over, or over the radio to Earl, you know, get the guns in the tower. And so they're getting them up. And then right, Danny and Rafe play chicken, call back to the beginning. And they take down, so they, you know, go as pretty much as close as they can before they turn, which, like, takes out three of those planes. And then I they love are, the chicken that they played in the air. Oh, yeah. The callback, the scene, the coordinated effort. I love that. Uh, and and going the dog looked great here, yeah. Yeah, and the, um, you know, not to, like, military nerd out too much, but, like, the coordinated effort and the strategy and the tactics, like, that's mm. what makes our military the best. Hashtag not sponsored. <laughs> <laughs> they bring a bunch of the Zeros past the control tower where Earl has finally got him and Red and Goose up in there. So they lure the planes past the tower. They take down one of the planes that way. And then they head over to Battleship Row. And at this point, this sounds like Pirates of the Caribbean music. The music definitely did get more jovial is the first word that comes to mind. It is probably not an appropriate word from death to like, yeah, like, we can do it, um, but in music form. So I think they take out a few planes there, and there's one guy in the water who show up shouting out, P-40s, yeah! I, I distinctly remember that from even the first or second time I saw this movie, yeah, which I don't yeah. think I said at the top. I have saw this movie twice in theaters. You did not say yeah, that at the top. Like, and I've like, seen it yeah. a number of times on DVD, Blu-ray, etc. Yeah, that part's very Michael Bay. It <laughs> seemed like something out of Transformers. <laughs> Like, I know, I know that you like, that's not meant as, like, a dick. Like, I, it seems like the kind of thing they would do. It seemed like something I would do on my couch. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, America. America! So we go back to Japanese fleet, where Colonel Fuchida reports that there's been a successful attack, but cancels the third wave, which, again, is back to Tora right. Tora Tora. We, we don't get an explanation here, but it's because he doesn't want to risk, you know, too much 
and figures that this is a good time to withdraw. Rafe and Danny land back at the airfield. There's a really cheesy but works for me part where uh, Earl is like, who taught you how to fly? To Danny, he's like, he did. And then Rafe has the very dramatic posing uh, when he's coming out of his plane. I was like, oh, yeah, Michael Bay is finest. <laughs> Well, this actually reminds me of that part in the Age of Heroes where someone says, who taught you how to shoot? Oh, yeah. He said, you did, Joel Sargent, and everyone makes fun of him. But this is not making fun of This is pure hero pose, like, oh, America. Rafe and Danny's heroic movement is over, but this is where, really, Evelyn actually gets something to do here. This worked for me a lot. They don't have anything to mark with, so she's, like, thinking of things of what to use, so they should, you know, grabs her lipstick and use it to mark, like, who's had morphine and who hasn't had morphine the m on the forehead thing they also do that in band of brothers but they use the guy's blood to do it so Uh, as much as we love evelyn she didn't come up with the idea of putting an m on someone's forehead they ran out of tourniquets but someone uses tourniquets she takes off her stocking and gives it to the doctors that use this and they send her out to do triage and like mark basically only people only send in people who can be safe she has to make that judgment call like uh, you know if they're too far gone don't even bother sending him in. Yeah, which is hard. That's rough. That's hard. Yeah, there's a part here where someone comes up to Evelyn and she's like, am I going to be okay? Am I going to die? She's like, don't worry, you'll be fine. And then she walks away and says, he's not going to make it. Was that supposed to be funny? No. Yeah, I didn't think so. But it, the way it was like timed. I don't, was, think, I don't think it was timed. I think it was uh, more. I don't, I, yeah, I, I don't I think didn't so. Get, it's it's like, trying to be humorous um, at all. I think it was trying to yeah. be just like serious and like, you know, all right, yes, we're telling you something, but the reality is you're going to die. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was supposed to show her caring for everybody in the way that she could. Because I think mm-hmm. if it's the same patient I'm thinking of, she said to somebody else, you know, give him morphine and make him comfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have enough, she says, I think the line is like, do you have enough morphine to make him comfortable because oh. he's not going to make it? Oh, yeah, yeah, there we go. This is also the part with the Asian doctor, which was actually one of my favorite parts in the movie. Because even though... because Okay, so what happens is one of the soldiers is like... Mm -hmm. I don't repeat exactly what he says, but he says something very hostile to this Asian doctor because he thinks he's Japanese. So what I liked about it was it felt very real. It felt like the kind of thing that really would have happened at the Mm -hmm. time. Yeah. And it was subtle in a way that Michael Bay movies almost never are. Okay. Yeah, like the part in Tora 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 with the messenger delivery boy, it was a hint of things to come and foreshadowing for the Mm. real world. But it wasn't like a big dramatic moment. It was very fast. And then you move on to the next thing. Yeah, 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 I agree. Um, Someone is bringing bodies to Evelyn and she says, I just found her. And it's Betty, Red's fiance. And she, and she like, well, actually, she even before she knows it's Betty, she's automatically says, no, she's already dead. And then like they re- make the dramatic reveal that's Betty. And then uh, Jennifer Gardner's there, too. And is like, no, you sure you double check? No, she's dead. Keep you know, We need to keep moving. And this is where like Jennifer Gardner has her like slightly like probably the most dramatic part of her performance mm. where she's like drops and is like, I don't know what to do. Yeah, she was freaking out a little bit earlier too, but yeah. she continues to freak out here. Yeah. So we go back over to Battleship Row where it's completely devastated. They're trying to save anyone who's left. Also, we find out that the dog is alive. I was so invested in it. Like, when you just see the dog swimming up and goes back to his owners, oh, the dog's alive. Yay. I, I like that they showed that the dog made at the end. <laughs> there we go. Tying back. So, running theme of, of these movies for you, Sarah, is we're dog movies. 
<laughs> First Sergeant Stubby, now this. Uh-huh. Mm, Dogs point. and war. There you go. <laughs> Dogs and war. And feminist propaganda. Uh, <laughs> so Admiral Kimmel finally gets a message that says, attacked by Japan and considered imminent. And he's like, well, they're only an hour late. Yeah, very ironic. And there's a scene where Doris Miller is on one of the boats and he sees the flag of the Arizona and like fishes it out of the water, which made me think, wait, he wasn't on the Arizona, right? He was on the West Virginia. Yeah, Earlier, I think he was on the Arizona. So, because um, of the way that the editing mm. happened, I thought he was on the Arizona. Uh, oh, yeah. And was, yeah, it was unclear. And then yeah. I was confused after because we saw him after. So, um, part of the, your confusion is probably because a lot of the battleships used the same ship for filming. They just swapped out like the life preservers with the names on them. So, it's hard <laughs> to tell them apart. But of course, they're all also going to be exactly the same because they're all battleships. Yeah. Right. But yeah, so he fishes the Arizona's flag out of the water and like holds it tight, which I guess is more for like, not because he was on that ship, but because of all the souls that were lost on that ship. Anyways, we go back to Admiral Yamamoto with the with the Japanese fleet. This is where we get his sleeping giant quote, which probably never happened. Yeah, you probably never actually said it. We go back to Evelyn, who's exhausted. She's working so hard. And Danny and Rafe come to give, like, say, what can we do? It's like, we need blood. So they give their blood in Coke bottles. As they're doing this, they see a priest giving last rites to a bunch of soldiers who are dying. Mm-hmm. A soldier run in and say, you know, there are men trapped in the harbor. We need every every man who can stand. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're trying to cut scene. through this scene. Yeah, this one was oh. rough. Oh. Like they're trying to cut through the hull, but they, you know, the cutters aren't working fast enough. They're reaching out through. You only see their hands reaching out through the hole that they've cut so far. Danny and Ray for like holding their hands as the water is rising, and then they, the hands stop reaching back. That was oh, wow. that was, yeah, was hard really to watch. How would you make me watch that? I mean, that was yeah. hard. I that can, was I remember how I felt when I saw that the first time in the theaters, and I mean, it loses none of its impact actually. Even yeah. though I've and seen it you, probably upward of ten he, times, I this yeah. yeah. Not only do you see them drown, you see just the hands, and they're holding mm-hmm. each other's hands mm-hmm. as they drown. Like oh, oh, that's all I got so, to say. We can deride Michael Bay for his storytelling a lot of times, but. He works in other places. Like, here he works. Yeah. So FDR now makes his big speech, date that will live in infamy, which... 3,000 people died, which is similar to 9-11. That's another weird coincidence, too. Right. It's also overcut with scenes of the devastation at Pearl Harbor. And then, you know, he asked Congress to declare a state of war. And we next go to FDR meeting with a bunch of his staff. Apparently there are men still trapped inside the Arizona because there's they could hear tapping from the outside of it which is mm-hmm. wow. And was yeah, a true that's thing. Right. Yeah, yep, that's right. So they started to try to plan attacks against Japan. And basically his, whoever is, you know, person from the Navy there is saying it can't be done. And he does this dramatic thing of standing and don't tell me what cannot be done. Yes. And at this point, I'm like, okay, the movie needs to end now. <laughs> Did you look but at the clock and see there's an hour left? Yeah. And I was like, that's, are you was- kidding me? <laughs> That was kind of the funny thing. I have a similar, it felt like this is act three. This is the big battle scene. You know, our heroes are heroes. And I had assumed that the movie would come to a close. And then they go and make their medals. And I thought, okay, this is the last scene. And then it, it did in fact keep going. 
we get another another news reel about everything going on in the Pacific, everywhere else, and all sorts of fighting. And then FDR hears an idea of how to bomb Tokyo from a sub-commander. And then we go to like a hangar that's full of coffins draped with American flags. We see Red kneeling down besides Betty's coffin, which got me. I was like, oh God, they were about to, they were engaged. They were going to wait two years till she, till she was 19 to get married. Oh, I, I mean, it got me. Also got me Doris Miller visiting his captain's casket, giving it a salute. Yeah. Yeah, the salute. Rafe and Danny are pulled aside. They are told they're going to be need to go to, uh, to the mainland, and they're like, "What's this about?" Is that you can ask Colonel Doolittle when you see him. We're back to the relationship drama. So this is when Evelyn reveals to Rafe that she's pregnant, but the Danny doesn't know. He's like, "Don't tell him. I want him focused on this mission so that he's not distracted by anything else." So this is what I was getting at, where the movie doesn't chicken out and have her be like, I don't know which of you to choose. And then they leave and one of them dies and that makes the choice for her. Though Sarah's point that pregnancy makes the choice for her instead is a good one. I, wouldn't I don't think that was her point. But what was your point? Was it Sarah? Yeah, yeah. So my point, yeah, was sl- that's interesting. I didn't even think of that. My point was it will spoil what Amber Christian will get to which is kind of the last possibly quote of the movie. It's the two men that decide for Mm. her who she Mm. should be with Mm. and who should raise her child. So not only does, uh, spoiler alert for like 10 minutes from now, not only does one of them, the one that she kind of picked, Denny, not only does Mm. he die, then, oh, shrug emoji, I guess she'll go with the other one. And then... It's decided seemingly for her mm-hmm. that Ben Affleck will be the father of her child. Like, it's the two men who decide uh, her fate, more or less. Yeah. So it's in part, you know, partly because of, you know, their admittedly very Jesus-like heroic actions, like literally across. <laughs> we'll, Jesus. We'll, um, <laughs> I have thoughts about uh, that too. Yeah. <laughs> The only thing I would add was that she does say that she still loves Rafe. Right. Sure. She just knows that she can't be with both of them. So she has to pick one. I mean, they could thruple it. Not in the 1940s. <laughs> Where are you? Do you think he is William Martin Walston or whatever his name is? The guy who created Wonder Woman? I did kind of think that they didn't have her make even a hardcore choice. Because mm-hmm. she could have said, look, I love Danny. Peace. But... It's they kind of did a what was what was kind, uh, which was they had her like she could have her cake and eat it too. So so for the audience, kind of no matter who you wanted her to end up with, I think you can come away kind of happy because she confesses her love to Rafe but picks Danny. So there's I think the goal there was to kind of have everyone be satisfied. So I didn't think that she did a whole whole lot of picking, I guess. Yeah, I guess when you put it that way, they did kind of chicken out a little bit by not having her be like, okay, here we go. Final decision. I pick one of you and the other one have a nice life. We get the impression that she was going to do that, but never actually gets there. Because like you said, the decision was made for her. But before we get to that decision, let's uh, let's let's talk about the raid. Yeah, I was like, are they really going to do the whole raid? And then they do. <laughs> so we get Rafe and Danny meeting with Colonel Doolittle, a.k.a. Alec Baldwin. He got the name right this time. Mentions that, you know, he heard reports of them fighting against the, the Japanese in their hula shirts. <laughs> he's, yeah, I did, I did like the reference to hula, quote unquote, hula shirts, which is kind of funny. Mm-hmm. 
says he's putting together a top secret mission, which of course made me think of Mission Impossible because he's in the last two and he's like the secretary, so he's giving and giving out missions. I'm like, hmm, okay, interesting foreshadowing. Right, as well as a really spy movie. Cut to I don't know how many months later. Like we don't know when this. I would presume that the you know the funeral the funeral with all the caskets happened not long after. So three months later, on March third, nineteen forty two, we get Colonel Doolittle assembling his entire team. And you know, the, the classic look around you at the person next to you. There's a chance, uh, a fair chance that you or he will be dead. That's right. If there's any man who's willing to race those odds, step forward. And they all step forward. Yeah, something I should point out here is that it's the rest of the crew. It's like Michael Shannon, uh, yes, yeah. and Red, and the other guys. So it's like all of their buddies are all on this mission, which is kind of dumb, but whatever. At this point, I was willing to let it go. <laughs> So I did like the shot of the feet moving forward, like the close up mm-hmm. on all the feet. I thought that was kind of a cool shot. In that moment, I actually kind of thought that because our two boys had talked to each other and Ben Affleck basically said, you should stay back. Yeah, because um, Evelyn's already that lost the yeah. man she loved. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I thought that That's he true. had successfully convinced him. So I actually expected there he to be thought... one pair of boots back. Um, huh. I was wrong. <laughs> No, Danny's a hero. He wouldn't. Oh. I mean, yes, I I understand, but there is also there's also something heroic about being with a woman you love. He um, he's gonna give up his bro and his dream and everything for her. I mean, it's certainly a very different ending of the movie. That would have been an interesting way to take the story. <laughs> That's what I thought was gonna happen. Was that he was going to um. And if he had made that choice, going back to kind of what we were talking about a minute ago, the two men are making the choice for Evelyn. One of those choices is is both of them stepping forward. They're not told what the mission is. They're just told that they have to train to get these B-25s to take off in 467 feet. And they're going to be able to learn how to fly them like a fighter, 30 feet off the ground. And so start pulling off as inessential parts, armor plating, etc. I have something here. There's a part where they say, this is Lieutenant Jack Richards, and he's going to teach you how to do it. Yeah. Why? I mean, I Why presume what? that he's a real person. Probably. But he's in the movie for literally like three seconds, and then you mm. never see him again. He never talks again. No, he's the one who's telling them to like all the stuff they're taking out. You could have just had Alec Baldwin do it. I think it's because like this is the one of the few times where they're like, all right, there's a real person who did this. Oh, well, I mean, Alec Baldwin was also mm. a real person. So like, you know, just have that. I was curious. All right, 467 feet. There are 5,280 feet in a mile. So that's less than a tenth of the time. So they say that, or mm-hmm. Alec Baldwin says, you know, your grandmother can take off mm-hmm. a beast 25 on a mile long runway. It's like, all right, you know, that's pretty damn impressive in less than a tenth of the usual space that you get to take off in that. I liked how nobody could do it. And then he's like, you know what? I'm going to show you guys how to do it. And then he mm-hmm. goes and does that. Yeah. And we next go to the USS Hornet, where they finally get their orders. They're going to bomb Tokyo. And then they make the, give the very important note of, is it even possible to land a B-25 on a carrier? And they said no. But that's irrelevant, because we're not landing back on the carriers. As soon as they, we take off, they're going to go back, and we're going to land in China. Well, more like bail out in China. Yeah. I don't well, think they were the, the plan land was to land in China. There are homing beacons that they were supposed to activate. They say the purpose of this is to make America believe again. I like to recover. Alec Baldwin has the line about, you know, when they hit us at Pearl, it was a sledgehammer. and But, you know, what we're doing here will be a pinprick, but mm. it'll be a pinprick right through their hearts. For those on the pod, Zach just made like a... 
It's like, if you yeah. say so, buddy, I suppose. So th the next scene is my favorite part of the movie. It's just so funny. Let me make sure if you go to the right scene. Yeah. Yeah. Evelyn goes to see Major Jackson at Major Jackson's house. And you can tell it's Major Jackson's house or office or whatever. Because yeah, there's a sign that says Major Jackson. And I she walks up to him and she says, are you Major Jackson? And he says, yes, I am. So we know for 100% certainty that this guy is, in fact, Major Jackson. I do not remember his name or that there was a sign that said Major I, Jackson. <laughs> I remember that scene, but I yeah. did not remember his name. <laughs> okay, well, I guess they repeated enough that if you didn't get his name, that's on you. <laughs> oh, fair, fair. I mean, it's okay. You have to just remember what's important. Anyway, so Major Jackson is the soldier whose neck she plugged, or neck artery she plugged. And it just so happens that Major Jackson works in the command center. She says, I want to be in the command center when news comes in about the Doolet over aid. And she's like, he's like, you shouldn't even know this. What, some hotshot pilot mouthed off to you? Pretty much. She even says, like, it, actually, it's two pilots I'm concerned about. We go back to uh, the USS Hornet. Apparently, there's, like, the runway's three feet shorter than what they practice on. Goose got some victory cigars. And then we get Alec Baldwin watching Rafe and Danny. Is like, you know... We might lose this battle, but we're going to win this war. You know why? Because of them. Yeah, this is one speech after another is what I have. <laughs> Two speeches in a row. I don't know. I like this. I thought it worked. So next we get a briefing scene with Doolittle. And Doolittle says, you know, his superiors didn't want him to come with him. Is disobeying his orders and going with them. Over the radio, we hear Radio Tokyo. The person on the radio says, watch out. The enemy will get you. Oh, yeah, that's Tokyo Rose. Mm -hmm. which yeah. Is from real life, yeah. And then the USS Hornet gets spotted by Japanese ships. Yeah, I thought uh, they were, like, fighting them. Not yet. They were just going to general quarters. They are uh -huh. 624 miles out. They were supposed to launch at 400 miles out. So he turns to the other guy, whose name I don't remember, but you're like, we never hear him talk again. Yes, he talks here. Oh, Jack Richards? Okay, yeah. fine. He, he talks here. He says, uh, he's doing the math, like, I, you know, I don't know, launch now and have enough fuel to reach China. But he's like, but otherwise, I don't, what's the other alternative? We launch now. So they strip the planes even further. They take out some of the tail guns, put in broomsticks that were painted black to at least look like they have something back there. Yeah, I have in this part so much yelling. It's just people <laughs> yelling all the time. So they launch the planes. I think uh, Alec Baldwin and his co-pilot are first. I, mm -hmm. I like the scene where he's like, uh, when did you find a religion? He's like, when do you assign me to this mission, sir? With Doolittle, so earlier in the briefing, somebody asked him mm -hmm. what he would do if he had to land in Japan. He said he would basically... I would the sweetest military target, tell my crew to bail out, and I would take the plane down. So I thought, hmm... Somebody's going to have to make that decision. <laughs> Doolittle's going to die heroically. So one of the main characters is going to have to uh, crash land in Japan and make that same call. Because Doolittle says, mm, I'm an old man. You guys are young. Oh, yeah, like, that's right. Yeah. You might not want to make that call. And I was like, one of them is going to have to make that call. <laughs> um, uh, nope. <laughs> I mean, not directly. <laughs> no. Yeah, they do. Uh, they do get something else. Adjacent. They have to make yeah. a different call. We go to FDR making a radio speech, a very patriotic speech. People say that we're a nation of playboys and whatever. And we get 
you know, everyone else to fight our wars for us. But tell that to the boys of the Pacific. Tell that to people in the fly, the men in the flying fortresses. Tell that to the Marines. It would have been <laughs> so, nice to have seen some Marines when he said that, mm, but okay. Uh, yeah, but also the thing I noticed here on his desk, he has like a pin cushion, which is like Hitler bending over, and the like pin cushion is Hitler's butt. Yeah, that <gasps> seems a little unprofessional for the president, but whatever. They're flying the planes. They see the coastline. They start flying over the targets. And we have Evelyn getting snuck into the command center by Major Jackson. Sit here. Don't talk to the other typists. They won't talk to you. Whose job is she actually doing? And like, who? <laughs> and like, what about all this other stuff that should be ty- like the work that she's supposed to be doing? Who's going to pick up that slack? <laughs> Maybe that station was someone who's on vacation. Yeah. Anyways, that was a, but, that was a joke, by the way. Obviously, you're not going to go on vacation like <laughs> while they're planning this Doolittle raid. Yeah, but she also I like having my notes. Slowest typing ever. She's clearly not, you know, used to typing anything at all. So she's like with her two pointer fingers, like type, 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 type. Anyway, so back to the Doolittle raid. They have the target in sight. They start launching the bombs. We see factories and buildings exploding. Yes. Japanese planes are attacking them. And yes. they shoot back with real guns. Yes. And I was kind of like, would this be a good opportunity to bring back the broomsticks? Because they're like, mm. we can't shoot back because we have broomsticks instead. Well, I mean, there are a number of different guns on that plane. So they just took one of the guns out. They no, did make I, a reference I, to the broomsticks, I thought, at some point. Uh, they did. I was waiting yeah. for them, too. I didn't think they did. I mean, Maybe it, I missed it. it. Wasn't, yeah, it wasn't at this point. No, there's nothing here. It was before. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so yeah, we get the anti-aircraft guns uh, firing. I don't think we have other planes. We just have, we're, they're just getting shot at by anti-aircraft guns. Well, I guess that would make sense because they have to escape and they wouldn't be able to escape other planes. Yeah. And there's flak everywhere. They like say split up, get into the clouds. And Evelyn's overhearing all of this on the radio. And like it gets closer to the door where the radio is coming out of. And they like close the door dramatically. You can see Major Jack's face does not look good. Mm-hmm. And then we get a shot of a temple in Japan where people, where like women are there and like seeing flying over. Filmed, actually not Byodo Inn Temple in Japan, not, actually filmed at a replica of the Byodo Inn Temple in Hawaii, which Carolyn and I visited when we went recently. And Sarah, you should definitely go and check this out. It's really cool. Yeah, I would definitely like to. And I, I did at least recognize it <laughs> in the movie. <laughs> From the photos oh, we really? sent, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they get into the clouds. My notes, it's definitely autocorrect because it says Thor's dead, but I'm pretty sure that was supposed to be Theo. Oh. <laughs> okay. Who's oh, yeah, the yeah, other yeah. guy? I remember Theo yeah. now. Yeah. He dies in the plane. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we see FDR gardening, and then he gets word about the Doolittle raid. They launched 12 hours and they were supposed to, and the homing beacons that they were supposed to get you know, go to China to show them the safe landing spots on a ship that crashed en route. So they have no homing beacons either. So they're running out of fuel. They're like basically on fumes. But finally, they see the coast of China. So Rafe and Danny are to like break off together and they're gliding in. They're dead stick, which means they can't control it at all. So they're just, just tr- they're just bracing for impact at this point. And then Rafe's plane crashes down there. He warns off Danny saying, Japanese patrols, down there, the, in China. Don't, yes. you know, don't come here. And they get pinned down by one of these patrols after they crash. I like that they're using pistols. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's pretty much what, what they would have on there, unless they, like, pulled off one of the guns. No, I know. I, yeah. I just like no, that it's, it's so it's, yeah. different. You don't mm-hmm. see it too much. Yeah. Yeah, they get pinned down. 
Danny's plane flies over and like goes does a strafing run and saves them from that patrol, but then like lands elsewhere and crashes in a big explosion. It looks like it's like completely destroyed, and there's no way anyone could survive it. But of course, but everyone. Danny's, does. you know, Danny's injured. Goose is alive, but mm. Danny's injured. He's got like a piece of metal in his neck. <laughs> Rafe, of course, runs over. Brad's trying to stop and say, "No, there's, you know, there's patrols everywhere." And he like does this impressive run where he like runs through gunfire, right? The- like. <laughs> Yeah, through gunfire, he shoots the Japanese soldiers as they just pop out from the pet rice patties. It's very action movie. Yeah, and gets to Danny. By bromance love. <laughs> yeah, that's the true romance here. Yeah, he sees that Danny's got, you know, a thing in his neck and is, like, trying to pull it out. But as this is happening, they get snuck on by another patrol. Patrol gets a drop on them. They tie Danny to a piece of... Wood. I I don't remember what it was actually. Carolyn told me what it was. I was like, but I do not remember what it is. That's a name. Okay. Yeah. Well, the like it, the way it was shaped, it was actually a recognized the Jesus piece of something. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like a, I even made the joke. So the what Jesus are they going to crucify him now? Rafe grabs a gun from one of the dead pilots. He uses it to sh- you know, shoot the other so shoot a, a bunch of the Japanese soldiers, but then ru- runs out of bullets and is about to get shot. When Danny jumps in front of him and takes the bullets, other people get the drop on the other soldiers, and but Danny is shot. This point doesn't really matter, nope. but I thought that Danny didn't just like use his body as a shield. I thought he actually sort of jumped yeah. into the guy who was shooting and like got shot by a third party. Yeah, I don't remember. Oh yeah, that, that's what it. Yes, yeah, so that's what it was. Yes, yes. So yeah, yeah the person think, who was basically he saves his bro. Yeah, yeah. I like that a little bit better because a it's slightly less cliche and b i think it's like it's not technically drunk, smarter? In front of the, yeah, yeah right you're right so no, it's, it's, it's not just him jumping a, in front of the bullets right yeah right it's yeah. him taking out the guy but then other soldiers shoot him yeah Functionally, and you see the bullets the go outcome, through but. him so they're like oh there's no way he's walking away from this yeah. so as danny's dying uh you know rafe's is like no no you, you've got to you've got to make it danny you're gonna be a father and he's like, no, you are. And then Danny dies. Basically, what, five minutes too late, the Chinese arrived and they managed to get out of there. It's weird seeing the Chinese as the good guys, huh? Aside from, like, Pacific Rim. <laughs> yeah. I like how yeah. they have an American flag, too. To show that they're <laughs> with, don't yeah. get it. <laughs> so, back in Hawaii, you see Evelyn's there waiting for everyone to get back. You see a bunch of other families, too. Evelyn sees Rafe, but he has that this is not good look on his face. And as he steps out, he's pulling the coffin, which is somehow Evelyn knows it's Danny's. It hadn't occurred to me until Sarah said it that she did lose each of them once. Mm -hmm. One time for fake, one time for real. And it would have been interesting to have her see some kind of reaction. Like, at least, at the very least, say something like, not again. I can't lose him again, right? I'm sure they did cut to her face looking upset. Yeah. I guess I wanted it to be bigger. It's a Michael Bay movie. Make it big. (laughs) Big explosions, big emotions, all that stuff. Yeah. This is also completely a stupid point, but here we go. I've started talking. I'll finish it. Uh, (laughs) When Ben Affleck brings the coffin out, he brings out one coffin very dramatically. And for cinematic storytelling reasons, obviously it makes sense. We bring out exactly one coffin. Of course, there were multiple people from from their squad who didn't make it. 
who Theo you think would also. What? Yeah. And um, there's even like a random other guy who they're like, where's so and so? Oh, they're dead. It's like, yeah. who's that? I have no, don't remember <laughs> who that is. I thought in the moment as, you know, Ben Affleck is coming down the stairs and instead of pulling out a coffin, I thought what was going to happen was, and maybe this is just what I would have done from a writing perspective, uh, headcanon, um, is that he <laughs> just closes the stairs behind him um, as though, ah, like, no more people are going to come out. So rather than actually, oh. actually bring out the coffin, ah. I thought he was going to walk down the stairs and then close the stairs and then see Evelyn's face just sort of sunk in a looking Drop, face. yeah. Well, that works too. I mean, I think both work. I mean, they yeah. both work. They both yeah. work. I, yeah. I just for some reason thought that that was that would happen. Hey, Hollywood, call me. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'd like Sarah's version better because I like subtlety, like the part of the doctor that I mentioned before. But of course, it's a I said, Michael Bay film. Yeah, you know, I was about to say that it's a Michael Bay movie, so it's going to be on the nose as much as possible. We cut to everyone getting medals. So all the nurses are getting medals. Actually, so it looks like they're getting purple hearts, but I don't think any of them got injured. It's probably safe to say they got hit by some debris. Yeah. Doris Miller getting his medal. We have, and we get voiceover from Evelyn about how he's the first to get the Navy Cross. Uh, first African-American to get the Navy Cross. First of any. I would have liked it if she had said something like, he got his Navy Cross and he got the respect he always wanted. Like the well, I mean, do we know that he did though? I don't know. Well, maybe she could have said something like, "I hope he felt he got the respect mm. he wanted." Well, I feel like in this point, she's not acting as Evelyn. She's just like as a narrator, basically. It's not like her perspective, mm. but just as an overall narrator. Right, but the overall narrator would know that too because mm. they know everything right. about it. I mean, it's more of an omniscient narrator than necessarily character narrator kind of thing. I don't know. We also see Rafe getting a medal from. FDR and like Doolittle's there's a that's for all the Raiders. And we go to shots of the Arizona, the real life Arizona, which is still underwater. Then we go to back to Tennessee, where we see a little kid playing around and he sees at the base of a, mon a memorial to Danny. We see Rafe and Evelyn, and presumably this is Danny's kid, who we find out is also named Danny. Danny and, Jr. Yeah, right. Rafe takes Danny flying. In the same the crop most adorable little aviator cap and yes, in the same crop. And then with that, Faith Hill's There You'll Be. <laughs> I yeah. watched that music video immediately after, which is interesting. Because it was directed by Michael Bay. And it actually used a lot of the same sets as the movie. And there's even a scene of her like in the parachute hangar. As it intercuts with them making love in the parachute hangar. Oh, the same parachute hangar? Oh yeah, my yeah. With that is the end of the movie. So shall we go to our spy fact versus fiction? Zach? Uh, sure, I can start. So my sources are Wikipedia and the Cynical Historian, which is similar yeah. to History Buffs where he does movies. Okay, so first of all, active duty American airman, which Rafe uh -huh. was, could not We're go not. and fight with the RAF during the Battle of Britain. Yep. But civilians Correct. could. Mm -hmm. Yep. The Battle of Britain had already ended in October 1940, whereas the film has it happening in early 1941 as the dogfights were depicted, none of the Eagle Squadrons saw action before 1941. The scene where the Japanese target the hospital is not true. They did not target it. It was damaged in the attack. And only one member of the medical staff was killed, but while he was on his way to report for duty. Doris Miller stayed a cook. He went on a war bonds tour, but then was killed in action when the carrier he was on 
was Tank. So then a lot of the mistakes were like kind of small things, things that only ZJ would care about. <laughs> so like, for example, the crop duster was a year too early. Right. That type of crop duster does not exist. In the part where the, Germany's invading all these countries, the newsreel. Show the tank stuff from the, that didn't happen yet. Well, no, it's an American tank in the newsreel. Oh, that's even worse. Oh. Yeah. The surfboard was invented in 1935. So before Michael Shannon did. Well, the surfboard more... fin, not just a surfboard. Okay, thank you. There were Marlboro cigarettes came out in the 70s where they're, they're in the movie. A lot of the ships were wrong. Like there was four destroyers that were also from the 1970s. But let me look for the, for the really good stuff. So the Doolittle Raiders did launch in the USS Hornet after being spotted by a single patrol boat. Mm-hmm. They didn't get into a fight. And they didn't do nearly as much damage as the movie made it appear. Also, no bodies were sent home immediately. They were interned in China for the duration of the war. Okay. The Queen Mary was used as a troop ship during the war. It would not have been docked in New York Harbor. Well, it might have been, but either way, there wouldn't be fancy people in tuxedos on it. Right, right. Or the sparkling bulbs. (laughs) Yeah. The Mythbusters already did bullets traveling through the water. They were not, yeah, they didn't work that way. And then finally, all the stuff about FDR is kind of wrong. Like, oh. he wasn't surprised out being told there was an attack. He didn't do the thing where he stood up and talked to his staff. Mm-hmm. And the generals didn't say it was impossible. They were convincing him to do it. It okay. being the duel mm-hmm. made. So that is it for my spy fact. I've got a few other things. Well, you mentioned the thing about the surfboard fin, which is what I was going to say. So Danny mentioned at one point that the Hawaiian name for Pearl Harbor is Waimomi, which means water of pearls. That is true. I was surprised that they actually got something right in there regarding like actual Hawaiian culture. This is according to IMDb. Apparently in camera shots during the Doolittle Raid, where it appears that the actors are actually flying the planes, they actually are. And it wasn't there wasn't like CGI intercuts. So what would happen is they an actual pilot would bring them, you know, would fly the plane over where it needed to be, and then they would get the camera, the other camera plane in position, and they would briefly have give the yoke over to Ben Affleck, Alec Baldwin, and Josh Hartnett. So they at least had enough flight training so they could keep it steady, and then once the shot was done, they would go give control back to the actual pilots. Lastly, this is uh, fun for a little bit of, you know, something that we've covered in the past and a movie that we're going to cover in the future. So we have two Jack Ryans in this movie, Ben Affleck and Alec, Alec Baldwin. Oh, that's true. And Alec ben Affleck, you wanted to say Alec I, one I more time. Do, yeah. Ben Affleck was on the set of Pearl Harbor when he was offered the role of Jack Ryan and his co-star Alec Baldwin persuaded Affleck to take the role. And there's even a line in the movie where Alec Baldwin says, you remind me of myself some 20 years ago. Oh, I assume that's coincidence, though. Yeah. Alec Baldwin's like, let's put that in. <laughs> I don't think so. So, I, I actually have some spy fact versus spy fiction. Alright, yes, go for it. Um, as, as a veteran of the pod, I knew this section was coming, so I, <laughs> I did some research, and I have four very quick things. <clears throat> okay. First, because as soon as I saw the after the movie, I was like, I have to know how much is real. Like, I have to know <laughs> immediately. So um, they did have the one hour warning and they did think that it was planes coming in from the mainland. Sounds like you covered that last week. Mm-hmm. On the Arizona, there were so many brothers who died on the Arizona that the military mm-hmm. afterwards tried to stop the practice of placing blood relatives on the same ship. And I think that practice okay. was in place for a little while. And then I don't think it's in place anymore, question mark. I'm not sure. Oh, no. um, 
but it was because of the devastation to to families on Arizona that that sort of policy change um, was considered right. at least. The, a date that will live in infamy is, of course, legit. Mm-hmm. But as originally written, the line was a date that will live in world history. Huh. And FDR actually scratched it out and wrote infamy, like scribbled above it. So I thought yeah. that was kind of a neat fun fact. Yeah, um, that's a lot better. <laughs> a lot better. Um, <laughs> and that attack on Japan that at the end of the movie that Zach had just talked about did happen I wanted to know, but couldn't find out how many miles offshore they were when they took off. When they actually launched, yes. I wanted to know, yeah. Um, So I don't know how many miles offshore they were. I I have that information somewhere. Hold on. Nice. They did take the trip from Pan to China. As they said in the movie, there were 16 planes. That was was accurate. Um, And unlike the dramatized ending 15 did make it to china um mm-hmm. and one crash landed in the soviet union but i, saw I don't that, yeah don't believe mm-hmm. anybody died so yay. in the movie they say it's 624 <laughs> miles off the coast yeah. it was actually 650 miles off the coast oh damn so it was even more yeah i don't know why they changed that mm-hmm. of all things oh so uh, i do have another thing for spy fact versus fiction so the control tower that the uh, goose and earl get up into when they're shooting at the plane so if for a long time it is still there but it was a long time you know it was badly damaged and needed for furbishment but as of july um you can actually start to go up into it and visit because they got funding to restore it Mm, nice yeah and so it is right next to the pacific aviation museum which is one of my favorite museums in Hawaii, of course, Fish Museum is also great there. But if you want the whole Pearl Harbor experience, I would recommend going to Pearl Harbor, uh, to the Arizona Memorial, to the, the Battleship Missouri, and to the Pacific Aviation Museum. You could also go to the USS Bofin, which is a submarine there. It's not as interesting as all the other stuff. Good to know. It's a little yeah. tourist tip for you. Last bit of spy fact versus spy fiction. So during the filming of this movie, one of the Corsairs, which was mocked up to look like a Japanese bomber, actually clipped a coconut tree and crashed. I remember seeing this in the news at the time. I was injured, but it like survived. It was a minor injury. But ironically enough, it's very similar to what happened in an accident while they were filming Tora Tora Tora. Another plane, which was mocking up a Japanese fighter, also crashed, but that time the pilot actually died. Oh, jeez. Yeah, oh, I didn't hear but about it that. It was interesting that, like, yeah, it was like both films, which were filmed both in Hawaii and were both, you know, depicting Pearl Harbor or the attack on Pearl Harbor, had similar accidents where planes misfired and clipped something and crashed. Living in Hawaii at the time when I was filming, mm-hmm. I remember that vividly, like seeing in the news. All right, so shall we get to our favorite quotes? I've got a bunch, but if other people want to go first, my guest. Sarah, as our guest, would you like to go first? Sure, I would love to. I wrote down two, but in retrospect. Hmm. So, <laughs> so I wrote down, I think World War II just started. <laughs> <laughs> that legitimately gave me a chuckle when it came up in the movie. Zach, if I could guess, I don't know. That you, we definitely haven't talked about it on this particular pod. I have a spidey sense that uh, you are not in favor of that World War One just happened. Like, announcing the thing that, like, legitimately just happened. Like, 
I think we just entered a great war. <laughs> I have, I have a, a sense that you're not a huge fan. It's funny you say that because we talked about this quote on the podcast before in the movie Bridge of Spies. We talked about <laughs> right. how someone uses the term Cold War. Yes, that's what it was. That's, that's right. What it was. Somebody was very against it. I thought it was Zach because I remember I listened to that episode. I think it was know, both I of us to because we, you know this discounts all the fighting that was going on in Europe already. Mm. Right. The one thing I remember about it is I thought Cuba Gooding Jr. said it. Uh -oh. Christian thought some red shirt said it. Turned out we were both wrong. Really? I thought it was, it was Danny who said it. I thought I said it was Josh Hartnett. I don't know. We'll I'll have to listen back to the pod. Okay. At the time, it gave me a chuckle. Looking at it now, I'm like, that's a stupid line. Why did right. I? <laughs> Why did why did I take I mean, effort to put my favorite quotes too? But it's a pretty dumb line. I think the and delivery is what makes it. Yeah, why did I put pen to paper? But it legitimately gave me a <laughs> chuckle. My actual favorite, which is corny in a different way, but still yeah. wonderful in its corniness, is "God help anyone who goes to war with America." No, yeah, well, you gotta have the full quote in like a British accent. I'd just like to say, if there's any more like you back home, God help anyone who goes to war with America. Yeah, history buffs really didn't like that quote, no. but I say, where's the lie? <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, well, that's two off my list then. Zach, what do you got? Wait, those okay. are both on your list? Oh, yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did like World War II just started. I liked, Michael Shannon says, ladies cloud the mind. Because <laughs> that's oh. very him, and it's very the times. I like someone said, you died and so did I. That was Evelyn, I think, yeah. But then the last favorite line I will say is, let's go do some business. Who says that? Somebody says it when they're like going to go fight some Japanese, and I thought it was cool. <laughs> okay. Sarah's got two off my list from the Japanese admiral who says, a brilliant man would find a way not to fight a war. Mm. Photographer saying, I'm with Navy Newsroom. I can tell you one thing, them ain't Navy planes. <laughs> From FDR, I like subcommanders. They have no time for bullshit, and neither do I. No time for baloney, and neither do I. <laughs> Actually, I think the captions just say bull dot dot dot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it says that sometimes, too. Let's see, from Alec Guinness. There's only one more thing I can tell you. Leave your goddamn hula shirts at home. Yeah, yeah that Alec Guinness, he really knows what he's talking about. Uh, I did, I did leave your hula shirt, man. Yeah. <laughs> and this is an actually good line I like from Dan Aykroyd's character. I understand my job is to gather and interpret material, making difficult decisions based on incomplete information from my limited decoding ability is your job, sir. Nah, put him in his place. And lastly, <laughs> one of Danny's last words is to take a shot at Rafe. He says, can you do me a favor, Rafe? Can you have someone else write my name on the tombstone? Because oh, he's that dyslexic. was a little mean. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Whoa. in the moment, because of the delivery, I interpreted uh -huh. it as I don't want you to have like the yeah, burden and the responsibility. Like, I didn't think it was funny. No. I it was straight. I thought in the moment, of course, now I'm like, Danny, do that. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that's your mean. last words, Danny. You're taking a um, shot at your friend. <laughs> yeah, in the moment, because I was so wrapped up in uh, the bromance, I was like, oh, yeah. you don't want your best friend to have the burden of like writing your name on the tombstone. Uh -huh. and, like, but no, it says he can't spell. Like, that's mean. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It was not a very well-timed joke. I will agree with okay. that. <laughs>
All right, so now it is time for our ratings on a scale of one to 10 martinis, one being The Avengers 1997, still the worst movie we've covered, and 10 being some hypothetically really good movie, better than Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. How would we rate Pearl Harbor? Sarah, as our guest, you may go first if you'd like. Sure. So I would say six out of 10 martinis. All right. Want to give any explanation for that? (laughs) My feelings oscillated a great deal <laughs> during mm-hmm. the three hours of, of this cinematic event. But the bottom line at the end is that it was, um, it was an enjoyable watch. I believe, I don't know if you're still doing this, but of all the pods I've listened to recently, you've been rating it as how good is it as a spy movie. Mm-hmm. And interestingly... So I sort of had a, a little bit of a running tally in my head. In addition to which team am I on? Hashtag team Guinea or hashtag team. <laughs> right. I thought, so the beginning, I don't know, first, like third-ish, I was like, this isn't a spy movie at all. This gets a zero. This gets no martinis. <laughs> this is not a spy movie, regardless of its entertainment value. But there was some sprinkling in of uh, stuff. And there uh, was more of that sort of infused throughout the movie. So like, eh, it like, arguably more spy stuff than Sergeant Stubby. Uh, <laughs> That's fair to um, say, yeah. I mean, and I have other feelings about Austin Powers. Those are the two movies I've been on for. Uh, um, overall, entertaining to watch. It got me in the feels, both in terms of like my upsetness as a woman and also my sentimental feelings, you said. Mm-hmm. Both in terms of like friends, wishing each other goodbye before they go off to war and the the exciting patriotism that you get from like watching jack bauer go like find find a bomb so all in all it was a roller coaster of a ride um <laughs> figure it kind of evens out to in the middle ish but on the better side of in the middle i think it's because it more or less ended on a note of me not completely hating it mm-hmm. like <laughs> Admittedly, I love some of the choices at the end there. If it had ended at a different point, um, mm-hmm. when I had just coming off of a fume of, you know, you shouldn't treat women that way, you should respect their boundaries. If that was how I'd been feeling, then I probably would have rated it slightly the lower side of the middle. But at the time, I was, despite the fact that thinking about it now, like it did kind of end on an anti-feminist note a little bit. <laughs> Winding back the clock, uh, like 10 minutes, <laughs> there was enough of a high, although it really did kind of have two endings. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Zach, you want to go next? Sure. So I went into this movie expecting it to be terrible because its reputation preceded it by a long shot. People always talk about how bad it is. There's a whole song in Team America World Police about how much it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it is really long, and it doesn't mm-hmm. need to be that long. The acting is pretty bad, not that I'm really someone who cares so much about acting. If it had ended, I think. After Pearl Harbor. After Pearl Harbor, and they didn't include the Doolittle Raid stuff. And if it had been titled something other than Pearl Harbor, <laughs> I think it would have been seen as like not great, maybe a little pretentious, but ultimately pretty forgettable. I didn't like it as much as Sarah, and I'm sure not as much as Christian, but it definitely is not. Well, <laughs> it's not a terrible movie. There's things to like, and even the love story wasn't that painful to sit through, so I will give it four out of ten martinis. Alrighty. I didn't know, admittedly, like anything mm. about the meat, even the fact that it was 
bad. What I knew mm-hmm. about it was it's not really about the attack. It's about a love story. And knowing that now, love story, they think it, who's the love story? Is it Ben Affleck and Evelyn? Like, is that the love story? No, it's like, Danny and Rafe. Ah, oh, there you go. It's the romance love story. Way more with me. And I would have liked it if probably better if it were more that than the love <laughs> triangle that I, mm-hmm. I, that I have feelings about. <laughs> but yeah, calling it a love story, it seems, I don't know, it's not that it's unaware of its bromance, but there is a lot of overtones of romance romance. <laughs> yeah. Something else I wanted to point out, by the way, and I should have mentioned this during my recap, was doing some research about why people didn't like it. I think mm-hmm. people felt like it was disrespectful to the veterans who died at Pearl Harbor mm-hmm. by making a Pearl Harbor movie that's about some fictional romance, plus all the inaccuracies made it feel kind of sloppy. I am not sure how much I agree with that criticism. I think people just wanted to hate it and it became a self-perpetuating cycle. So it's interesting about the the two endings. It definitely, like, it ended. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> the movie ended and then mm-hmm. there was like a 30 minute epilogue or, or whatever it was and i have mixed feelings about having the little raid at all i like that it made me look up what happened um <laughs> mm-hmm. with you know with the do little raid because i was like i need i need to know if this happened like i just gotta know and i enjoyed watching that part of it here like from a like oh that's a neat concept <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear more about the jewelry, right? but like from a storytelling perspective, I think like the movie was complete and I would have been very happy with a second movie separately about the Doolittle Raid. So there are movies about yeah. the Doolittle Raid. Yeah. Right. Something that jumps to mind that I think would have improved because what happened in the Doolittle Raid was Danny needed to die. So it would have been yeah. much cleaner to have him die at Pearl Harbor and then have the ending of the movie be Rafe getting onto the Doolittle Raid and having them launch and then have some text about what happened with the Doolittle Raid. Mm-hmm. Which is what I, yeah, what I thought would, I thought that's what, how it was going to <laughs> end. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until at the end when the title screen came up, Michael Bay, and I wrote, oh, that's why this movie kept going. <laughs> right. Actually, it's Michael Bay and then like uh... eight question marks. Oh, that explains the long war sequence. <laughs> explains so oh, much. Oh, that's great. All right, so time for my review. Mm-hmm. Now, admittedly, and I think I've said this at the top, that I, I do love this film. And yeah, I mentioned that I saw this twice in theaters. How much of this is because it's set in a place that I've lived and I you know, recognize some of the scenery and all that is up for debate. But also it hits me in that sweet spot of, mm-hmm. all right, you know, Top Gun, pilots, great. Mm-hmm. And then World War II, woo, I, you know, I love that stuff too. It gets me in all those three spots. And if I was just rating this as a movie, 8 out of 10, 9 out of 10, maybe, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> but really high up there. As an intelligence movie or a spy movie, most of the spying is down to Dan Aykroyd's character. But even though he's an amalgamation of a bunch of actual characters who we saw last week in Tora Tora Tora, he had more personality than any of them. And I was more invested in his story and than the actual real-life characters that in Tora Tora Tora. Like, kind of horrible to say. <laughs> but I was more invested in this story because I actually had a feel for his character. He wasn't just a guy who would show up a few times on screen, say something that he said historically, and then disappear, never to be seen again. So for that, I'm going to rate this movie higher than I did Tora Tora Tora. I'm waffling between 6.5 and 7. You know, I'm going to say 6.5. 
because I did enjoy this movie more than I did Tora Tora Tora. Mm-hmm. I will confess, yeah. I did rate mine in terms of like, I know I said I'm aware that I'm rating it as a spy movie, and then I did it. <laughs> That's and then fine. I just yeah. straight up did it. Yeah, it's your rating. You can do whatever <laughs> yeah. you want. But yeah, six point five. I like. I I love this movie, and I will yeah. probably watch it again in the near future because it, it. I enjoy it. And uh, how much of that is due, to, is due to me seeing this, you know, as a kid and relating to Danny and then being gutted when he died? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like I said, I'm the kid who invented stuff out of other stuff. I was also yeah. sh- more shy, less than sure of himself and that sort of stuff. So related to Danny and then, oh, seeing, oh, Danny gets the girl. And then, oh, no, he's dead. What? <laughs> I had Tough feelings. For Danny. I had feelings about that. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, six and a half out of ten. I do enjoy this movie as an intelligence movie. It's I, I was, you know, I liked the depiction of it and I, that quote from Dan Aykroyd about having to make those calls and all that stuff was great for me. Okay, well, thank you for joining us, Sarah. Is there anything you would like to plug? Of course. So, if you're interested in following me on my journeys around Hawaii. I have a YouTube channel um, and I'm having a lot of fun vlogging. So if you'd like to experience Hawaii with me, you can join me at Sarah is actually on YouTube. And you may see some surprise appearances from previous guests of the podcast and also (laughs) myself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Thank you for joining us. As always, you can find us on social media at the spy five guys on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram until next time. I'm Christian. And I'm Zach. And we are the SpyFi Guys, signing off. Thank you for listening to the SpyFi Guys. If you enjoyed our podcast, please be sure to give us a five-star rating on iTunes. The theme song from this podcast is Mistake the Getaway by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Films, books, and television shows reviewed by our podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This is a personal podcast. Any views, statements, or opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and belong solely to the participants. They do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the participants may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated. Any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual. You can find our podcast on social media at The Spy Fi Guys on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.